day. I'm very pleased to see so many people. Uh, and it's really difficult for me to make the right selection of material because I have got so much material that I could entertain you for a week. So I'm sure you don't want to stay that long. <laughs> now, to begin with, um, I had handed out the uh, description. You have had the description of what we're going to do on spirituality and ecology. And I had written that we will be concerned with the deep connections between ecology and spirituality as perceived by these two great beings, great thinkers, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and um, Thomas Barry. Both developed, I think, a new consciousness of the earth and its people, and both asked how a new earth consciousness is intimately connected with the emergence of a new earth community, but also what road we have to choose and what great work we have to undertake to engage uh, in work which will need, which will help us for this new world to be born. Thomas Barry was deeply influenced by Teilhard de Chardin and he praised his achievements, but he also went beyond them. He wrote, and we are in ecological age and the great work our way into the future. And I hope I will give you some introduction. Now let me ask you, who here um, feels they know quite a bit about Pierre Teilhard de Chardin? Have you read or have read a bit? Who has never, let's put the other way, if you're not too shy, who has never read anything? Who has not anything? So you're, it's really an introduction. Okay, what about Thomas Barry? Is he better known or less known? You have known, you don't know anything about him. Very few people know about him. Well, I have given you the outline for the day. I try to do as much as we can. There is a lot to be covered. And I've given you suggestions for readings. And I will come back to those and explain more about those later when we have a look at also at their um, essential writings, which unfortunately, well, I think some are still available. There is a collection, I don't know whether you know this very well, established and extremely comprehensive series, Modern Spiritual Masters, which is a series produced by the Orbis Books in upstate New York, Marinol, New York. And you get the essential writings selected here of Pierre Théa de Chardin from all his different works. And you get the same from Thomas Barry, but I understand that unfortunately the, uh, the distributors couldn't supply the book because they always run out. They get sold out and we haven't got them, but you can order them, and I have listed them on the, uh, on the, I think I've listed them. Yes, yes, I've listed them each time under the name of the person Thomas Barry and Teilhard de Chardin. So here you have the selected, with an introduction, the writings particularly on the New Earth community. This is a very, very fine book, and I shall quote a little bit from it later. <coughs> Now let me start. My first title for this morning's talk is The Revisioning Spirituality, One Earth, One Spirit. What is this all about? Now I have to perhaps give you something about my personal background which will make you understand why I'm so enthusiastic uh, about both Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and Thomas Barry. I would say, you know, I would talk about my different adventures with these two men, 
the uh, Teyas biography that I've written, The Spirit of Fire, he wrote very early on that he was following the fire, and he wrote this during the First World War. Just to say briefly some of the dates, he was born in, in 1881, and he lived till 1955. And then Thomas Barry was born in 1914 at the outbreak of the First World War, and he lived till 2009, so he lived considerably later. And I've met Thomas Barry and uh, stayed with him in the Riverdale Center of Research in uh, upstate, well, outside New York on the Hudson. I have not met Thiago Saddam personally, but I have interviewed in the 1970s many of the people who knew him, including several members of his family, particularly his younger brother and also this cousin. So I have quite a good sense, and I've stayed in the places in France, particularly in Les Moulins, the uh, chateau in the Auvergne, near where he was born, and this chateau belonged to his uh, brother's family, and it is there where he wrote one of his uh, classic late works in 1950, The Heart of Matter. The Heart of Matter is a 90-page autobiographical writing about his spiritual development through his life. And it's, you know, it's really what I consider the key to his writings. And it starts at the heart of matter, the heart of wor a world, the heart of God. It's the heart of God at the heart of the world, the way he saw it. So I'm really feeling very closely drawn to Pierre Thierry Chana because I had such an immersion. My, my <coughs> Discovery was in 1962 when I was a student in Paris when the Vatican actually um, had uh, published a monitum to say that his works should not be read in Catholic seminaries. They were forbidden to be read, so they became particularly popular. You know, I found, I found they were under lock and key even in when I went to Leningrad under the communist, I asked in the Academy of Sciences, have you got any works by Teilhard Yes, 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 but they're all locked out. <laughs> They had the works in French. So you can see, and it was a bit like this in some of the seminaries. I've heard all sorts of stories from seminarians of that time. So in 1962, you know, he had become too popular. They had, he died in 1955, and his religious writings had not been published until then. He, could, he was trained as a geologist, as a scientist, and I, I say about this a little bit more in a moment. And he, he lived, you know, he worked professionally as a geologist, and he could always publish his writings in the sciences, but not the religious writings. So nothing had been published, and he was really dying to, I mean, he, he tried several times to get some of his great works published, particularly uh, Le Milieu Divin, the divine milieu, which he, he wrote in 1927 in China, and he couldn't get it uh, published. Then he wrote The Phenomenon of Man, now much better translated more correctly in English, The Human Phenomenon, in 1949 to 50. He couldn't get that published, but it was all ready for publication. So when in 1955 he died, uh, he had made a testament, he made a will, because he had been advised by one of his Jesuit uh, friends, he should not leave the writings unattended because the Jesuits would never publish them. So he had, uh, he had a sec, well, not a secretary, but a friend, Mademoiselle Mortier, 
who had organized the committee, and she had been given his will that all the religious writings should go to her. So as soon as he was dead, they started to publish. And the first, uh, first book that was published was The Human Phenomenon, The Phenomenon of Man. And that was quite a sensation. And then they started to, to publish over the next 20 years all the different essays and everything he'd written. So he became Im immensely popular in the Catholic world, around the world, in the 1960s, in a, from late 1950s to the 1960s, throughout the 1960s, many students, many universities, you, you can ask all over the world he was known, and he was more widely read in Paris itself than, than the existentialist, than Jean-Paul Sartre, and I've seen articles in French papers of the time to say this, he was just the sensation. And I had a wonderful, I was studying theology at the Institut Catholique in Paris, and I had a, a very fine professor of dogmatic theology who was actually Belgian, who knew Teilhard well, and who had tried at the end of Teilhard's life to get some of his writings published, and he couldn't get them published. But he would just, in the lectures, go on and on about Teilhard. And when the Vatican said, you can't have this in a Catholic seminary, <laughs> the Institut Catholique was technically a seminary, but I was the only woman studying there with 200 men. I wasn't going to be a seminarian in a sense. But he, the professor who was called Pierre-Paul Longri, who was really a specialist on Neoplatonism, a world specialist on Neoplatonism, he, he's together with a, with a Swiss scholar, he edited all Plotinus's Enneads in the original Greek. He was a very strong, vivid character, and he said, I'm going to give a whole week's lectures on Teilhard here in the Catholic Institute, but not to the seminarians. I'm inviting the whole of Paris. You can all come. And it was an absolute sensation. So we had these lectures and the huge lecture amphitheater. You know, people were sitting on the, on the steps and the stairs. I mean, uh, health and safety wouldn't <laughs> would have had a fit had they seen the crowds. And he talked about Théâtre de Chardin, his life, his work. And that's the first time I heard about this man. And I thought, my goodness, this is so interesting. And then the wonderful thing that happened, which really determined much of my life, uh, he, Mademoiselle Mortier, they had all these essays in photo, you know, cyclostyle. At the time, it was cyclostyle. So they lent me for a week. I was so interested. I wanted to read something. They lent me uh, The Heart of Matter, his spiritual autobiography of 90 pages, which was not published till 20 years later. And I read it then, and it completely you know, mesmerized me. And I thought, who is this man? What are these ideas? I'd never seen or heard anything like it. So this is how I started. So that really set me on my way. And then I started reading to Ernest later, when I was married and was a lecturer in divinity in England. And then two years later, I went to the Himalayas. I went to live in India for five years to study and live there. And during the holidays in the Himalayas, during long summer vacations, sitting up high in the Himalayas uh, to get out of the heat in Delhi, I started reading Tian, reading Tian. That's how I started my research. And then when I came back to Europe, I went to interview all these people and I had lots and lots of tapes. So that's my story with Tian. So just very briefly, before I get uh, too much sidetracked, I had this discovery. and. I really felt that there are very many different approaches to his work. When you look at him, 
very briefly I can say. He was born in the volcanic Auvergne, and that very much shaped his life. He belonged to a, uh, an ancient aristocratic family going back to the Middle Ages, but it was particularly the fossils, the bones and the stones he could collect in the Auvergne. His father really initiated all his children to become collectors of fossils, and that determined Teilhard's interest from his childhood onwards in in uh, geology and paleontology and collecting fossils, and that's what he largely did for a long time. And so you have a man who becomes a scientist, but who was at the same time very religious because his mother was a very devout woman, and she introduced him very early on to the Christian mystics. He knew the Christian mystics very well indeed. So he had this orientation towards the world, the attraction of matter, and the beauty of the natural world in the Auvergne, the mountains. And then he went to school and he pursued these two lines of thought. And as a very young man, at 18, he had this vocation. He wanted to become a Jesuit. He had gone to a Jesuit school, but his father was quite against him becoming a Jesuit. You stay at home for a year and you just do something else. And he did first a licence in, in literature, doing home study and doing exams at the university like what we would call today almost distance learning, before he was actually allowed by his father to, to join the Jesuits. But he joined the Jesuits at the age of 18. And then what happened is that because of the anti-clerical stance of the French government, the Jesuits were suddenly expelled. They couldn't be in France anymore. So where did they go? They had a house, they found a house in Hastings. And he did his theological studies in Hastings. So he was from 1905 to 1908 in Hastings. And then he also pursued scientific interests. He went, you know, he went digging for fossils wherever he could, particularly in the, in the clay and in the cliffs. And there are quite a lot of um, specimens you can see in the Hastings Museum, which are still there, which were collected by Teilhard, little ones of, of fossilized plants collected in old tobacco boxes, cigar boxes, very, very interesting with his handwriting on. And then the Jesuits in their training, they go and teach in schools for some years. So he was then for three years from Hastings to, um, to Egypt, to a, a Jesuit college in Cairo, where most of the boys, this was a boys' school, most of the boys were Muslims. And he really was suddenly thrown into the, if you like, what he saw the East, the Middle East really. And he discovered, you know, the beauty of the sea, which he's already discovered in, uh, in uh, England. No, he first, I made a mistake. It's not, it's not Hastings he went first to. He first, the first 1902, 1905, I left this out. He was on the island of Jersey from 1905 to 1908. He was in Hastings. Uh, from 1908 to 1902, no, 1905 to 1908, he was in Egypt. 1908 to 1912, he was in Hastings. I mustn't get, you have to, well, I haven't given you a handout on Tia. But just to say this, you got these, the discovery of nature, but also the, this, you know, the beauty of the ocean, of the woods, of uh, the desert. He was always drawn to the desert, the Egyptian desert, and he dreamt of Egypt. He always wanted to go back to Egypt, but he, he got as far as Somalia in a later uh, travel, traveling through there on his way to China. Then in nine, he, he, he um, 
meeting. He was ordained in 1911 in Hastings. He said his first mass in a church in Hastings. Uh, the Star of the Sea, it's called, devoted to Our Lady, the Star of the Sea. And then uh, in 1912, he decided, or his vocation, his novice master suggested he should really pursue his um, scientific interest as well as his religious interest. So he went to Paris to study the sciences, uh, to study theology at the Museum of Natural History under a very famous Professor Maslambul. And he was you know, suddenly thrown into city life of Paris. He met very interesting people, philosophers and all sorts of people. I can't, it's too much to talk about now. But then the First World War started and he was called up and he wasn't supposed to be a combatant being uh, ordained, uh, but he chose, he didn't want to be a chaplain either. He wanted to be with the soldiers and he became a stretcher bearer. And that's a very interesting story. I could tell you about this for a very long time because the First World War was for him really a crucible of fire. You know, and he, he started writing in the First World War. He wrote his first essay in 1916. And, he, uh, and these essays are not sufficiently well known. They're called The Writings in Time of War. And they're about 14 or 15. And then he wrote two or three after the war. And they are extraordinary because they bring out his mystical inclination and how he sees the universe penetrated by the spirit of God, the presence of God everywhere. The universe, he becomes what he calls the apostle of the cosmic cause. That's really how he sees it. He sees the, the divine, the, the, you know, the sense of presence in nature, the beauty, but the spirit and then the evolution. I mean, it was in Hastings that he discovered the modern scientific understanding of evolution, and that completely revolutionized his religious beliefs and thinking. You know, and he wrote about this later, how it changed his practice, his action, his understanding, because everything suddenly becomes alive and dynamic, and there's a process at work, and everything is in flux. Everything is on the move, and this completely changed his thinking very, very radically. And he writes about this, very beautiful passages. I could, you know, they're very deeply mystical. He becomes really a mystic seer. And he feels that, you know, he discovers an affinity with all the mystics he reads who have experienced God in different ways. But he sees now this added dimension of the modern understanding of evolution. I'll say a lot more about this. So he starts to write. Then when he comes out, what is extraordinary with the First World War, this man took part in all the battles, the main battles of the First World War at Verdun, everywhere on the, on the Western Front. And he, I mean, I find it sometimes almost incomprehensible, if not to say superhuman. You know, you when you think of all the fights and the destruction and the desolation of the First World War, how could this man write, you know, and he found whenever there was a lull in battle and they were quartered maybe on some, they were stationed in some farm or something, he would get out a little exercise book, a like a school exercise book, and write on the lines in very fine 
between the writing and what he was thinking about. And it's amazing, you know, that, and he writes, the first essay he wrote was actually called The Cosmic, Cosmic Life. And he says, you know, I'm driven, at the, you know, before, um, for major, before a major battle, he writes, he doesn't know whether he will be alive, whether he won't be killed. So he says, this is my intellectual testament if I, know, if I don't survive this battle. I want to say this, you know, and it's all about this extraordinary, evolutionary, mystical presence that we experience even in the midst of war. But what is extraordinary, he took part in all the battles from 1915 to 1918. I, about, I can't remember whether it's 65 or whatever, small and large. And the extraordinary thing is this man never got a single shell or a wound of any kind, even though he was constantly going to the front to bring back the wounded, you know, to get treated or to bring back the dead. I mean, it's so extraordinary that he was in a, he was in a regiment of largely Moroccan and Tunisian soldiers, North Americans, uh, North Africans rather, and the um, officers, of course, were French. So you had a mixture of people, and he writes about this, and he got on so well with both the soldiers as well as with the officers. And what happened is that the Moroccans, they used a word for Moroccan Sufism. They called him Sidi Marabou. That's M-A-R-A-B-O-U-T. Sidi Marabou means a man who is tethered to God like a camel to a post. He is so tied to God that there's, you know, there's almost identity. And God protects him like as if he were living in a tent. You know, the barakah, the grace, the protection of God keeps him so safe that even the battles of the First World War can't do anything to him. So this is so extraordinary. And these uh, Muslim soldiers, I mean, they would, you know, when there was a lot of battle, they would uh, create you know, a little kind of chapel somewhere in a field or in a, in a, somewhere on a farmyard. And everybody would cooperate, you know, Monsieur Teilhard, that was their man, you know, and he, he was so popular. And after the war, he got several distinctions for his bravery and for his extraordinary performance. So that's the war. When he came out of the war, he studied, as I already said. He continued his studies, he did his, um, doctorate in geology with great distinction. And then he was appointed lecturer in geology at the Catholic Institute. And this was great because he now had a platform to present theology in a new way from an evolutionary angle. But his superiors didn't like this and he got into great trouble. He couldn't talk about evolution the way he liked to. So they really were, you know, he, he got into trouble, and this has never been really sorted out. He wrote a little essay about how you have to understand original sin very differently from an evolutionary perspective and so on. So apparently these, pa and these papers got to Rome, to the Jesuit general, and he was then asked not to really talk about these things. And in 1923, he got an invitation from a Jesuit uh, Jesuit geologist he knew who was in Tianjin. This is about an hour from Beijing or less than an hour with faster trains. And they had an institute there in a school and he asked him to come 
he invited me to come on a big expedition to the Gobi Desert. And Thea went out for about six months and he stayed well over a year. And this was, you know, this was the great opening of his life to discover the Asian continent. They, you know, they traveled all over China. They went on a, sh on a boat on the uh, big yellow river. And then, of course, there were lots of coolies. They collected, they collected fossils and they sent, I don't know how many huge uh, crates of fossils to the, you know, it was all funded by the, by the Paris Museum. The muse and they got all the fossils. I mean, later on, that got problematic. But at that time, they did get the fossils. And it was at that time when Teilhard could not say mass that he continued what he had started in the First World War when he couldn't say mass within the battlefields. He would, you know, symbolically say mass. And this is how he developed the mass on the world. And he wrote this in 1923 after he came back from this expedition. So the mass on the world is really an expression of offering up the whole of the universe, you know, at the, at the moment of dawn. It's a wonderful, wonderful text, and some of you may know it. And then he went back to lecture in Paris, but it got more and more difficult, and eventually he was told he couldn't go on lecturing. Um, and he got into, it was certainly the biggest spiritual crisis of his life. So he had to resign. And he went back to Paris, uh, to China. It was a convenient way of getting to China. And he became, actually, eventually, uh, a member of the Chinese Geological Survey. And he's very important for the whole development in terms of studying the Asian continent, because he, he did expeditions all over China, also to India, to Indonesia. He had a real grasp of what Asia was like, particularly China. So he lived. I mean, I have to come to a conclusion here now because otherwise I shall be on for the next uh, rest of this <laughs> lecture. He lived basically on three continents, in Europe, in Asia, and then very often on his way, he always used to go by boat, not by plane at that time. When he came back, every so often after every year or two years, he would go to France, but often via the United States because there, it's where the big geological congresses and conferences were, and he would present his findings. I mean, he produced about 11 volumes of scientific writing, so there's a lot there. And so he lived, you know, uh, North America, Asia, and Europe. So you have a man who's quite a global citizen at a very early time, and who didn't go to Asia as a missionary, but as a scientist. And he got on very well with young Chinese, with the Chinese geologists of the time. He was a member of their geological survey, as I said, and he uh, trained several Chinese, younger Chinese geologists. I met, I mean, in 1981, when uh, there was a big celebration of the centenary of Teya's birth, the UNESCO had a big uh, conference that I went to, and they had this poster, this is in French, really. They made a, made a little plug, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a coin, actually, which I have, centenaire, that's the centenary of the birth of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, 1881-1955. I've got this from this conference. And uh, two of the Chinese professors were there who had been as young men on expeditions with Teilhard and had been trained by him. <coughs> and they were talking about him and so on. It was absolutely <coughs> wonderful. I mean, none of these people are um, alive now. Now, what's interesting, when he came back the first time from Mongolia, it was really Mongolia, and I have gone to that area. I did in 1994, before I wrote my biography, I felt I couldn't go 
and do this without having really a feel for the places that he had been to. I mean, I couldn't do his exhibitions, expeditions, obviously. But Jules Verne at that time did an absolute marvelous trip across China, 6,000 miles by railways. The, the, at that time, in 1994, the Russians had laid a railway line from Shanghai all the way to Kazakhstan across to, we started in Tashkent, Samarkand, and went all across on this railway line. All across, you go right through the Gobi Desert, you go through a lot of places that he had been on mule and, and exp, you know, on his expedition. So it was, and we visited the Dunhuang Caves, we visited a lot of places he had been to. So I got a real feel for what it was like to be in Central Asia 30, 40 years earlier. Now, when Teilhard came back from these expeditions to Mol Mongolia, he wrote, I am a pilgrim of the future on the way back from a journey made entirely in the past. And the more he studied the past, the more he became directed and attentive to the future. So he's really a pilgrim who, first of all, was following the road to fire. By that he meant the energy, the enthusiasm, the commitment, the, the immersion in what he felt had to be done, what, his, what was his vocation and his work. But at the same time, it was an openness. He always felt you have to go further ahead and above. And that's really where you have the dynamic of the evolutionary kind of uh, movement. You know, it's not a closed kind of past. We know all the answers. We know where we come from. We are just here and live our lives. But no, there is so much more to be discovered, so much more to be done and so much more to aim for. And that is really where you get the dynamic in him. And you have that in Thomas Barry, uh, to whom we come in a moment. So what is really, uh, I won't say any more, because when he came back from the war, um, after, I mean, he was, he was in China also the Second World War, uh, when, when the Japanese had really um, occupied Beijing and much of the area so that he couldn't do any more expeditions then, and he did a lot of writing. But he came home to Paris in 46, and he was so popular, people liked to hear him and see him and so on, uh, his superiors didn't really want him there. And he went to work for scientific um, foundation in New York. And he spent the last five years really in exile in New York, where he died, and he's, he's buried uh, north of New York. So that, that's a really, in a way, He's lived in exile and he's still in exile now. He's not back in France. But what is important is that he stressed right up to the end what is his vision is to develop the seeing, to see more deeply. To see more means to be more, to be able to take in more, to see. Seeing is very important. And we might say uh, not only seeing, but to use another of our senses to to be listening, listening to the voices of the earth, listening to the voices of the people, listening to the voice in our heart. The listening, I mean, you can see the, the, centra, the, um, the attention that is given to centering on your senses, on listening, seeing, but not only in a physical sense, but you might say in a 
in an inward and metaphysical sense. So the whole study of evolution, the modern study of evolution, about which I shall say more in a moment, is that, you know, what is the, we as scientists, they've taught us all the outward things, the developments, and we have a tendency to see it from the outside. But it's a question, what is the inner dynamic? What is the inside, the inwardness? And what all this, you know, where is the soul? Where is the spirit in this? And that is what Teilhard really talks about. He sees, you know, what he sees is the divine nature of matter. He doesn't make a separation between spirit and matter. The inside, the inwardness of matter is the spirit that rises, a universe that rises and rises more and shows that there is the spirit there the divine nature of matter. He wrote a hymn to matter in 1919 in Jersey when he came out of the war, which is absolutely extraordinary. I could quote from this if I can find it quickly enough, but uh, let's have a look. The divine sense. The, the divine in the depths of blazing matter. You see, he writes, the diaphany, the shining soul that is, of the divine at the heart of a glowing universe as I have experienced it through contact with the earth, real contacts, real feeling, touching, exploring, digging, this has brought this out to him. The divine radiating from the depths of blazing matter. So he co this comes out, of course, in the divine milieu, which he wrote in 1927. What is this? environment, if you like. He calls it the divine milieu. He means by this, this, this ever-present, hidden, inward presence of the divine. It's not mine. It's not mine. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> well, this, well, this is very funny. I, I apologize because I can't, I don't know. I'll leave it. It's gone. It's gone. Because I tell you why I thought it wasn't me. Because it's really basically kaput. I can't see anything on my thing. I, I dropped it in water in the train, and it's kaput, and I need to replace it. But I, I charged it, and I thought, well, maybe I can actually make a call. I don't know what that is. And I will not know who phoned, because I can't, I can't check it on the thing. Right. So uh, the, if, we, if we did a study on the divine milieu, for example, you get, you have from Thomas Merton, when he discussed the divine milieu, he described it as the epiphany of the universe, the epiphany of the universe, what the divine shines through from the universe. That's a very beautiful, um, you know, a very beautiful description because what it points to is a new understanding of creation theology and of Christology. Oh, God. Stop. Stop. Um, and of Christology, it's a which also includes a new vision of a global humanity. So there is a lot to be taken in here. At the heart of matter, a world heart, the heart of a God. That is really the motto he puts in front of his, um, of his uh, spiritual autobiography, the heart of matter. That is what it's all about. And if you read that very condensed text, you, from his childhood onwards, he describes how this experience unfolded in him and led him, following a vision which he pursued all through his life. And I think this will become clearer when I make more 
um, then I give you more citations later. Now, I come to evolution. I will, I will come to Thomas Berry briefly now, but um, I will say more about him later. As I have already said, he was born in 1914. He lived till 2009. So he had obviously a very different um, background and lived at a different time. But interestingly enough, with him also, he was very much drawn to nature because he grew up in rural North Carolina and he describes very beautifully how the, the beauty of the woods and the meadows and the creek, how all this drew him and, and expressed a presence, a hidden presence, a spirit to him. Also, he followed in his own way. So, and interestingly enough, you know, the wonder of nature gave him uh, a sense of, you know, gratitude, a sense of grace, of something which is given to us, the gift of life. And interestingly enough, at the age of 20, he joined the Passionate Fathers, and he later was, he joined the monastery, and later he was ordained. But then in 1948, before the um, Chinese Communist regime had actually been set up, he went to China, and he developed really a very, very interesting um, fascination with the religions of Asia. He went to China originally to teach at the Fujian Catholic University in Beijing, but he couldn't stay there. When the communists came to power in the following year, in 1949, he returned to the USA and he studied the Chinese language, culture, and so on. And he did a took a doctorate from the Catholic University of America uh, and with a dissertation on philosophy of history. And then he went and served for three years as an army chaplain in Germany, and I know very little of this. Uh, he began to teach at St. John's University in New York, and then he came to Fordham University in New York, where he started the doctoral program in the history of religions. And Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm, who are currently the two uh, president and vice president of the American Toya Association, they both studied under him, but there are many other people also. But he focused increasingly on questions of religion and ecology. And in 1970, he founded, or was co-founder, what is called the Riverdale Center for Religious Research in Bronx in the New York, where he worked until the 1970s. And he spoke, he, he created also new, new terms, and I'll come to that in a, in a moment. And you have this book, I mean, he wrote many books, which I will talk about in the next lecture, but in this book, this is particularly called Selected Writings on the Earth Community, because he has a sense of an Earth spirituality. Oh, gosh, I have to switch this off. I apologize. I don't know what's going on. You know, this, this thing hasn't worked for weeks, and, <laughs> and now it's bothering me. I'm so sorry. This is not good. This is not good. I have to find it, and I can't find it, of course. Let's see where I've put it. Oh, dear. Here we are. Let me just switch it off. I don't want any more of this. You see, I can't check whether it's off. It should be off. It should be off. Yeah, I think it should be off. I hope it will be off. Uh, I'm very sorry about this. This is my own uh, stupidity, actually. I haven't had time to get a new phone. Right, we come to, um, 
I want to say more about evolution and spirituality of evolution. I will talk about the rise of the spirit in the evolutionary universe in the next talk. I want to get to religions, deep ecology, and spirituality. And that is what is now called the new cosmic story, where we will see more or learn more about how cosmology and the evolutionary understanding relates to spirituality. Now, the person I'm particularly interested in quoting here is the uh, Dutch, uh, the American theologian John F. Holt, and I have put some of his books on your, on your um, reading list. Now, John Holt, when I've heard him, when I've heard him lecture on the new cosmic story, he has a marvelous uh, diagram, which I will not, uh, I can't give you a copy of. I've only, it's only a very weak copy, but. I will just tell you what it's about. He tells you to give you a sense about the 13.5 billion years that evolution has taken, has been going on. You know, from the Big Bang to today, modern humans. He says, if you imagine evolution as not a story, as it is a story, but as a vast library of 30 volumes, 30 volumes where the first volume starts with the Big Bang. And each volume is a volume of 450 pages. And each page represents 1 million years. Now, that's a lot to get hold of. But these 30 volumes are each 450 pages, each page a million years. Now, he shows exactly that the first 20 volumes are entirely devoted to lifeless and mindless matter, as we usually describe it. Matter, there is no consciousness yet. But what is the inwardness of this matter? What's happening in this tremendous, large, long process? We don't know, really. Then the Earth story begins in volume 21, where life begins. The Cambrian explosion comes only in volume 30 at the beginning. The dinosaurs are extinct by page 385. You know, they're only 450 pages. And modern humans appear only on the last page, page 450 in volume 30. I mean, this is a figurative, quite imaginative way of making you realize what this process is about and how huge, how unimaginably, incomprehensibly vast it is, vast. But what is so important is we only have known this story in the last 150, 200 years, 150. You know, when you think of Darwin and the 19th century, how evolution comes to the forefront. But then, you know, we treat evolution as if it were just a process that was going on matter, nothing to do with us, and then human consciousness you know, the inwardness of life, and then suddenly something becomes conscious. You have a kind of presentiment, a sense of consciousness, which then becomes self-reflective consciousness in human people. You know, what is all this about? What is the inner side of evolution? This is what some of the theologians and thinkers are now beginning to inquire about. We haven't really actually got of all this. We don't really understand the story properly because it is so immense, it is so dense, it is so, in a way, inaccessible, however much we know about the outside, what was actually happening. You know, and Teja, of course, 
thought that there is a direction, that there is an aim, that there is a higher process, that there is a spiritualization at the inner soul, if you like, of this whole evolutionary process, which culminates in the distant future, somewhere in, in a point, in a confluence of the entire sense of the universe where uh, he feels, he calls this the point omega. He interprets this in a Christological sense, you know, the, the coming of the cosmic Christ. So there's, there is a lot in there, but we have to, you know, we have to really think about this a lot to understand this properly. Let's see what I've got left. Now, spirituality and evolution. If I want to just say a few things about this, I start with Teilhard and then I come to deep ecology. In 1935, Teilhard wrote uh, an article which is called How I Believe, which you find in one of his books, uh, he, where he writes, at the beginning, he has this motto, I believe that the universe is an evolution. I believe that evolution proceeds towards spirit. I believe that spirit is fully realized in a form of personality, and I believe that the supremely personal, the supremely personal is the universal Christ. You know, he sees really Christ disclosing that, not just in his life, Christ the historic Jesus, no, Christ is unfolding in the whole cosmos. This is why it talks about the universal, the cosmic Christ. And very interestingly, when Teilhard died, he had a heart attack and he died very quickly, very unexpectedly at the age of 74 in New York. But on his desk in the, in the house he stayed with the Jesuits was a manuscript litany which he had written on both sides of the picture of the radiant heart of Christ. Now, his, you know, the sacred heart was very much uh, a very strong devotion in France in the 19th century particularly, from the late 18th century to the 19th century. And his mother was very interested in this. And he was obviously uh, brought up in this as a young boy in the Jesuit school and so on. But he writes very critically of what is, you know, rather narrow devotion, you know. And he says later on how he started there, but how it completely expanded to the whole universe and would not be recognizable in terms of his childish and childhood devotion. But he has among his um, essays from the First World War, there is a story, story called Christ in Matter. And he describes the experience of a friend, but it is not really a friend, it's himself. And this Christ in matter is a story where this friend goes into the church to pray in front of the sacred heart, picture of the sacred heart in a frame. And suddenly, and it, it's very powerful. I mean, I could spend a whole hour just talking about this particular essay. And some people think that's his most mystically strong expression of his experience. Because what he's, he prays in front of sacred heart and then he describes how suddenly the picture, the frame expands and it expands to the entire universe, you know, and he sees Christ comes alive and his eyes penetrate him and I mean, it's very, very powerful, you know, and he, he asks himself, you know, am I the only one to see it? What is this? What is in these eyes? Is it glory or is it immense suffering? You know, and then he says, I've sometimes seen 
these eyes, in the eyes of a dying soldier, you know, someone who really is at the edge and, and goes, transitions from one way of life to another way of living, to another. So you get this very, very powerful. And so ha you have, you have in this sacred heart picture on his, on his desk, you have a litany. It's a little bit like when Pascal died, Pascal who comes also from Bilvan, they found in his, you know, in sewn into the lining of his jacket, they found, you know, they found a very powerful um, poem, short poem about the fire, about God, the God of, you know, the God of the prophets, but the God who is in Jesus and how, you know, how God is present everywhere. Now, Teja had written, and it's too long to, to read it all out, but you get here a litany uh, which is uh, written probably in 1953 or so, about, an hour, uh, about a year before his death, when he also wrote a more technical article which is called The God of Evolution. But here he writes on the picture, the God of Evolution, the Christic, the transchristic, Jesus, heart of the world, the essence and motor of evolution, sacred heart, I can't read it all out, but you know, the heart of evolution, the heart of matter, the center of Jesus, the golden glow, the world zest, the essence of all energy, the cosmic curve, the heart of God. You know, so it goes on. The focus of all reflection, focus of the ultimate and universal energy, center of the cosmic sphere of cosmogenesis, heart of Jesus, heart of evolution, unite me to yourself. That's what was on this picture. So you can see that he kept really the, you know, his fidelity to this vision of the evolutionary presence of God and the unfolding of the divine in the universe. And that is very, very interesting, the way that, uh, you know, he sees this. Now, let me see how much time I have. Um, I want to say something about religion, ecology, and a little bit about ecology of uh, uh, evolutionary uh, and, and spirituality. Now, what is very much a movement, those of you who are uh, aware of the ecological movement, is that uh, one can speak about the greening of religions, that, that the religious traditions, whatever they are, are um, uh, now much more conscious, or at least the people are most aware, they're conscious of uh, the ecological uh, responsibility we have and how we are part of uh, the movement of life and how we have to take care of the earth and how we have to really look after our environment. Now, what is important in the uh, ecological movement, I think, is the movement of deep ecology, a word or an expression that was developed by the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, who lived from 1912 to 2009, almost a contemporary of, of uh, Thomas Berry. And he speaks about deep ecology in the sense that it asks deeper questions in contrast to shallow ecology, that thinks the big ecological problems can be resolved within an industrial capitalist society by fighting pollution and resource depletion in order to preserve human health and, f and affluence. But in contrast to this shallow ecological movement, the deep ecological movement 
operates out of a deep respect for all forms of life and accords them an equal right to live and blossom. Some of these ideas are much discussed by Thomas Barry in his work, and we come back to that later, but Barry, to make this point here now, distinguishes the environmental movement from ecology. He understands the uh, environmental movement as too small. He says that's, that's too wrongly understood as an adjustment of the Earth community. Everything that we normally call the environment and nature, the adjustment of the Earth community to the need of human beings, to our needs, whereas the ecological movement is seen the other way around. It is an seen as an adjustment of human beings, our adjustments to the need of the entire Earth community. We are part of the Earth community. It's the Earth community doesn't belong to us, we belong to it, you see. So it's the other way around. This is very, very strong and very important. And that has spawned off a whole development about religions and ecology. It's quite a new conscious, a new um, subject matter, and you can get handbooks on that. And it is also related to what I call uh, a new earth consciousness. And an earth, you see, we speak about spiritual literacy traditionally, and in education you want to transmit a spiritual literacy to children, or what it means to be spiritually literate, to think about the spirit, whatever religious tradition you belong to. But Thomas Barry speaks about not just spiritual literacy, but earth literacy. We have to become earth literate. We have spent far too much time thinking the environment that's just out there, surrounding us, and it's there for our benefit. We can do with it what we like. No, we are part, we are immersed. We are part of the environment. We are living in it. We are rooted in it. We should be grounded in it. And I had a very interesting experience last year. I went to the island of Capri, and there is a Franciscan church, and they make a great fuss about this church because it's as big as here, and there's a huge mosaic in this whole church, and you're not allowed to tread on it. They have given a little kind of, you know, a heightened little pathway, and you can go all around because this fantastic uh, late mosaic creation. It's wonderful, the animals, the plants, and, and I said, well, where are the people? Where, where is creation? You know, no Adam and Eve. No, no, this is the environment for us. And you see this externalist attitude to the environment. We look at the environment. This is creation for us. But we are part of creation, you see? We are part of the creation story, even in the Bible, but you know, it's not seen, it's seen as the environment outside. So that's what I want to get over to you. Not to see nature environment as something that we look onto and look at or manipulate or, or plant, or, but how we are part of this and how we are really in You know, this is what I mean by an earth consciousness and earth environment. But the notice, and I will stop on this soon afterwards, Earth consciousness is a new Earth consciousness of one Earth because we see, you know, we have this vision of oneness as none of our forebears have ever had because we see the big, our planet, green planet in space. We are part of a new consciousness. We are living in the same Earth as our forebears, but our awareness and our relationship to the Earth have changed profoundly. 
so that our contemporary experience of nature, what we now call the biosphere, is very much the experience of one planet of the living world as a great vulnerable habitat threatened by any disasters and much exploitative human behavior. You, Thomas Barry used to say that we have been autistic for centuries to, in relation to the Earth. We have not taken much note of it. And he considers, therefore, a truly ecological attitude as radically different from the currently dominant industrial attitude to the natural world. He says, we need to seize our, this is more or less a quotation, we need to seize our industrial assault on the planet we have to befriend the earth and resume participation in the grand liturgy of the universe. Like other ecologists, Barry stresses the need for a radical turnaround from the dominant paradigm of anthropocentrism to an inclusive, what he calls a biocentrism, that takes into account the need of all life forms, not only the need and greed of human beings. So out our new consciousness of the earth, our new consciousness of the earth requires what he calls a new story. And he's been writing about the new story, which has become quite uh, popular now, but he's been writing about this since the 1970s. And he speaks hauntingly about the dream of the earth in this ecological sense, a dream of the earth, where James Lovelock refers to the oneness of this vision Gaia, you know, and looks Gaia, which calls also for a new look of at life on Earth. But what is interesting, this new consciousness of the oneness of the Earth, the human species, as far as we know, covers only the globe. Whether there are living species anywhere else, we, we don't know at present. It's possible that there may be a, a planetary people, a planetary being somewhere else. Peya writes about this in his last diaries before he died. He was conscious of these things being discussed, but we have no evidence so far, as far as we know. Uh, we don't know, but we could always find something that we don't know about. Already in 1975, when people spoke, had conferences about the environment, the then Indian Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, asked at the UN conference on the environment, she asked a very good question, and it was this. Will the growing awareness of one Earth and one environment guide us to the concept of one humanity? Will there be a more equitable sharing of environmental costs and greater interest in the accelerated progress of the less developed world? See, we are interrelated, interconnected. We have to see the world as one. So we have to ask justice of of the resources, who gets enough water and enough to lead, is enough food going around, is it spoiled in the West, do we waste our resources and other people starve because they haven't got enough. All these questions are very, very important. And these questions, one could say this question of Mrs. Gandhi in 1972 might already be set to point to the, in the direction of the subsequent Earth Charter, which was promulgated in 2000 after a long 10-year worldwide consultation, including the collaboration of many religious groups and organizations. 
so maybe I should stop there because otherwise I'd be, well, can I go on for five more minutes? Five more minutes and then I'll stop. So what I want to stress for you all, because I think this is a very important point. Our human species is deeply embedded within the biosphere, which provides us with the biological vision of oneness. The, bios the biosphere, this is a word which was only coined in the 1870s by a Swiss geologist called Zeus, the biosphere. And Teja learned that word very early and uses it from the 1920s onwards. You know, he became a real promulgator of the notion of the biosphere, which is quite uh, widely distributed today, but which was quite alien in the 1920s, you know, the biosphere. A biological vision of oneness, which is often referred to as the web of life. But human history, philosophy, and religion, you might say the theologies of different religious traditions, they also know about more, not just the biological vision of oneness, but the dream of a cultural and social oneness of humankind. That doesn't mean to do away with diversity, but on the contrary, diversity within unity, or unity made up of the richness of diversities, but it's interrelated, and that's, a pos that's important. It's an ancient theme which you find in many con different, countless creation stories and myths around the world when you look at it. And it's now becoming a real possibility for the human future. So today we can say there is an awareness growing around the globe that the new consciousness of one earth awakens us to the need for one humanity, even though there is uh, the concrete experience of diversity of cultures and faith, a baffling situation of pluralism with the ensuing tensions, misunderstandings, resistance and violence. But forward-thinking people like Teya or in Hinduism, uh, Sri Aurobindo or in Islam, Mohammed Iqbal and many other people we can think of, uh, they have seen that we have the concept, okay, can you hear me? I'll try and leave some time, maybe after the next lecture I'll try and be a bit quicker so that you can ask some questions. I want to ask, someone has just told me that, that he has met the, uh, um, Thomas Berry. Who else has met Thomas Berry or seen Thomas Berry? You have? You have met him? In you met him? No, you didn't, you didn't meet him personally. Okay, okay. Yes, that's right. Well, I like uh, someone here. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's good. That's good, really. Um, I want to say a little bit more about him now. Uh, I met him. I was in touch with him. I had a student. This is a very long story, which I will make very short. <laughs> A Dutchman who was um, a big businessman dealing in submarines, no less, <laughs> who lived for 20 years in Taiwan and who came to do a thesis on the comparison between Teya's thought and Chinese thought, particularly Taoism. But he had, I don't know how he met, he's still alive, he's in his mid-80s, uh, and he had met 
uh, Thomas Barry, I don't know where, but we used to go regularly over to New York and meet him and help him and provided some money to get his papers cyclostyled and distributed before they came out in books, long before. And through him, I heard a lot about Thomas Barry. And then I got in touch with Thomas Barry at some stage, and he invited me to come and stay with him at Rivertale, which is, uh, you know, it, it's an absolutely wonderful place. It's an old 19th century large house, all entirely by its own on the riverside of uh, Hudson. You can't see a single other house or uh, any, uh, any conurbation, anything. It's outside New York. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful because you sit under a very, very old oak tree outside and can muse about you know, all sorts of questions about life, God, and the universe. We had a wonderful time, and he showed me his library, and we discussed lots of questions that he discusses in some of the uh, essays. It was very gracious and very uh, stimulating. And then I was invited... That must have been afterwards, I think. I, I would have to check the date, I can't remember. I was invited to give the annual lecture for the Teya Association, which always takes place in New York, and he came to that. That was later. He was no longer at Riverside then. He had gone back to North Carolina to be retired, and he came specially for this lecture when I talked about uh, developing an ecologically balanced spirituality, and we met over dinner and so on and so forth. So that was very nice also. But he was certainly a very, very influential figure, but extremely um, humble. You would never, and he writes, his work is much more accessible than Teilhard de does because he writes in a much simpler language. You can read him, and it's very easy to read, and you get his ideas very much. And as luck would have had, have it, one day I was, I was teaching for a long time at University of Leeds, and I had to fly for some meeting in Ireland, in Dublin, and we got into the bus from, you know, from the um, departure lounge to go to the airplane, which was parked a long way down the airport. And opposite me, I couldn't believe it, was sitting, Thomas Barry was there. I thought, I thought, what is he doing here in Bristol? In Bristol, what are you doing in Bristol? Oh, he was going to Dublin to give some lectures. So I had the opportunity to also go near him in Dublin. It was absolutely extraordinary. It was like a revelation. Suddenly you board a bus, you sit opposite, opposite Thomas Barry, when you really don't think, think he's somewhere in New York and he's sitting in your bus. Uh, that was funny, really. But uh, he was certainly a very humble person and very, very easy to get on with and very accessible and uh, certainly must have been wonderful for his students. So. His papers were distributed as cyclostyle papers, not clandestinely like Teilhard's, but uh, you know, they, they went around friends before his, they were collected and gathered into books. And Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm uh, were very important in developing the, you know, the books and editing some of these papers. Now, the first book that came out, which is an absolutely wonderful book, is uh, the Dream of the Earth. I mean, he wrote essays before. I've got a piece here on the phenomenon of man written in 1979. So he was always writing, penning little things, but he wasn't just really working on a full book. The Dream of the Earth, that's a very beautiful book, very important, 1988. Then he wrote together with the, uh, this Brian Swim, The Universe Story, in 1992. And then the great work, Our Way into the Future, 1999, 
And then later on, I mean, he died in 2009, Mary Evelyn, uh, they, tr uh, they edited Evening Thoughts, that came out quite 2006, Evening Thoughts, reflecting on the earth as a sacred community. Then in 2009, the sacred universe, earth, spirituality, and religion. Then the Christian future and the fate of the earth, that came out even after his death. So there's quite a lot there. Then, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there is a lot there. And some, the best, and I think the best, the best thing you can do is find these selected writings on the Earth community. Thomas Barry, and that was published in 19, no, in 2014. So it's not all that old. That's why it's not so widely known. But you get a lot of, uh, insight into his work. I shall quote something in a minute from here. But you have, for example, the story of the universe. We'll come back to that. The story of the universe. Then chapter on the spirituality of the earth, where he speaks particularly about earth spirituality. And the universe manifests the sacred. Then rejoining the earth community. Then the universe's cosmic liturgy. Religions awaken to the university. That's how religions, different religions, have, have reacted to the evolutionary, the new story. Intercommunion of world religions. The challenge to Christianity particularly. The ecozoic era. He thinks this is now a new era we are entering where life is being more affirmed and interconnected and more understood. You know, he feels that we have developed in our vocabulary, you know, we have developed words like uh, geocide and bi no, biocide and genocide, but not geocide, you know, the, the, uh, the biocide and genocide, oh gosh, I can't not pronounce it. No moral teachings for biocide, that's the killing of life, or geocide, the killing of the earth. He feels we need new words to even um, acknowledge what we are doing to the earth and to ourselves. Then moments of grace, and he speaks now about the ecological age and what is the role of the human. Uh, so there, there is a lot on here. It's spirituality and ecology, cosmology of peace, evening thoughts, and you get all the sources of the books here. And there are other books that I found on the internet written by uh, scholars or, or friends of his. Uh, so there is more than you can manage. But this is, I found, I mean, I've read all the other books, but I find this very helpful because it's a kind of uh, concentration of the major thoughts and the most important and influential thoughts. Now, what I've said to Kate, if you feel really you wanted this, I had, I had had the ambition to provide a sheet with his uh, text, but I frankly haven't had the time. I've had a lot of other things going on, uh, and I've had to be away for some time, so I didn't find the time to do this. But if you felt you want the sheet, I can do it, and Kate would be willing to send it out to you electronically, because she must have your email address, you know. Otherwise, I would have I apologize for not having this ready. I had this general one ready, and I tried to, you know, I've put the books there. You have the books there on the, on the reading list under Thomas Barry. I've put the books that I've just mentioned. They are actually there, so you have that. On TR, you have some, you have more, and then on Thomas Barry, so you have that. But if you felt you need, 
Maybe you can make it plain to me afterwards if you need something in addition to what I've given you. I've forgotten there's, there's this list there. If you need more, I'm willing to spend an afternoon to produce more. Right, let me get my... Now, it's very interesting. In 1979, Thomas Barry wrote a few well, a short article, which I was surprised to discover in my very extensive collection of papers. And the problem that I have is that I have too many papers from too many years. And uh, it gets extremely, it's like, uh, you know, I can't get into my room because there are everywhere piles of paper and books and, and boxes with paper. So he wrote in 1979, after 40 years, a new look at Teilhard's most significant work, The Phenomenon of Man Seems Quite Appropriate. This is Thomas Barry writing. He wrote this in the Teilhard newsletter. And you won't find this anywhere. I don't know that this exists anywhere. And he speaks about the different uh, ordering, the different periods in human history. And he speaks about four basic ordering periods. The first, he says, was the tribal shamanic period when human beings perceived themselves to be integral with the natural world as it manifests itself in both its physical and spiritual aspects. That's the early history of humankind. But the second order, the second period, is when the great cultural and philosophic tradition established themselves throughout the Eurasian and American worlds which governed the spiritual and cultural destiny of humanity throughout the past 5,000 years. In other words, he speaks about what, some, uh, what Jaspers and some philosophers call the axial period, the period between 800 and 500 BCE, before the Common Era, when the great philosophers and thinkers around the world, whether in Chinese religions or in, in West Hebrew religion and so on, you get this flaring up of a consciousness of a unity and the search for truth, which is quite universal, but which is uh, Jaspers, the German philosopher, existential philosopher, called it the axial period, where an axis, a particular direction, is given to humanity. So um, Barry calls this the second period. Um, the third period is what we would call normally the, the Industrial Revolution. The period of human development is the period of order perceived and dominated by the scientific and technological achievements of Western society, i.e. since 1700 and so on, with all the kind of people you know, the scientists and what was discovered and so on. In this period, a new vision of the universe emerged. Its vastness in space and time came to be understood. An arrogant, this is where it's critical, an arrogant self-exaltation of humankind over the natural world can be perceived in this period. Now, he says, we are now in a new period. We are going beyond. We are seeing the, uh, all the uh, damage that the Industrial Revolution has done besides the benefits it's given us. So the fourth period of order presently emerging is what he calls the period of the intercommunion of all the living and non-living systems of the universe in a special manner 
It is the age of the Earth community, an age sometimes referred to as the ecological age. And he has written, and I hope to have time to quote from this, on Teya, and the, he wrote an essay particularly on Teya, the Sadan Teya, and the ecological age. Teya's Phenomenon of Man, i.e. what we now call the Jung Phenomenon, his major book, his major work, can be considered a transition work leading the Jung community from the third age, i.e. the industrial age, to a fourth age, one of the most monumental achievements of which the human mind is capable. It has required a knowledge of the total unfolding, now this is very complex but very important, the total unfolding of the cosmic earth human process, an understanding particularly of the earliest stages of the human, its later developments, and the deepest tendencies governing this process. This is really the rise of humanity and of our critical self-consciousness. So he says, such is the background of Teya's book, The Phenomenon of Man, and we see it now some 40 years after it was written. He says this in 1979, now we are much later. In setting out his vision, Teya has given us what might be considered a new type of intellectual literature. Very important statement. This is the basic difficulty of the work, because it's jolly difficult to understand. There seems to be nothing quite like this book to prepare a person for reading it, nor is there anything very helpful to compare it with, unless we see some parallels with the antique, with the Aeneid of Virgil, or the City of God of Augustine. So what we can say is that Thea has given us a reading of the universe, so you see, reading of the universe, of planet Earth, of the emergence of life, of the rise of consciousness, that is of unique value in dealing with the urgencies of life in a difficult age when the Earth process is itself threatened as never before, but when new and grand vistas open before us, if only we can understand and fulfill that most basic law of the universe, the law of communion, whereby each being of the universe is intimately present to every other being of the universe. So he says, he, he, Teya is at a new step, He's, but in the ecological age, we also have to see where he may not have gone far enough and where one can say we must develop beyond him, and I want to come to that also. Uh, now, interestingly, you find a lot of these um, views discussed by John F. Holt. I've only let, where's my, here we are. I have, I have just put in two books of John F. Holt, Deeper Than Darwin, The Prospect for Religion in Age of Evolution, and Resting on the Future. Now, what John F. Holt very much stresses, apart from giving us this big library of evolution, is that the, the um, um, how should I say, the movement towards the future, which I've already emphasized, that is very, very important. The future, he calls that our, our action and our aims must rest on the future. We must be able to see the opening that the future provides and the, the invitation, the calling 
the responsibility, the participation. It's very exciting, but also quite unsettling. So he calls about, he says, the resting of the future. Now, I have just read the book, which is not out yet. comes out in um, October from Yale University Press by John Hall, and it's called, very, very interestingly, it's called The New Cosmic Story. And it is inside our awakening universe. Inside, because what he points out is that all these, I mean, not all scientists are like this, but all these materialist scientists, they only look at the outside. They look at the atoms and the molecules and the nanotechnology and whatever you can think of. But what does this mean, you know, if you correlate it or put it in, in contact or in communication with each other because it is interrelated? And where is it going and what new kind of vistas does this open to us? It's an extremely interesting book where he says, Inside the cosmic story, he wants to bring out how cosmos, consciousness, and religion fit into the cosmic story. Since religion is webbed into what is still now called by scientists the unfinished universe. The universe is not finished. We think of it, everything is closed. It's the past. It's finished. No, it's not finished. It's moving. It's on the move. So you get a vision of extraordinary boldness, promise, and hope which tries to overcome the cosmic pessimism that sometimes is seen to preach. And this cosmic pessimism is overcome by what you, what you might call the fires of faith. You know, not faith in the traditional sense, but a religious and spiritual faith, which is deeply anchored in the diversity of our religious traditions that give us an anchor, but that must not give us closed doors, you know? Because the traditions of religion have too often been, we have all the truth behind us. We have our scriptures, we have our teachings. We know it all. No, we don't. We don't know it all. And that's exactly where you get a turnaround, where spirituality from an evolutionary angle becomes something more, it, it's connected to the spirituality of the past, but it's also opening towards something new. And that's what um, John Hall tries to really bring out. And what he does, and I must mention this very briefly. He says there are three main ways of reading the story of the universe. And these three ways also relate to the readings of the universe and religion. And I, you know, this is complicated now, and I haven't got a chart. That's my, I, sh I should have something to write on, but that's my, my mistake. What he compares is really the relations to time. Because we have the time dimensions, and that means we're in a developmental universe. Nothing is static. There's the past, the present, and the future. And time moves on all the time. And he calls the first attitude, where people see all the answers and all the solutions already given in the past. I, in religious terms, you have them laid down in the sacred scriptures. That is not true. You see, he feels that, he calls this the archaeonomic, which is very difficult to, to really even pronounce. It's the, the Greek word arche means the beginning, the origin, and nomos means the law. Archaeonomic means that everything is laid down, legalized, made the rule in by the origins of something, the beginnings. 
and Teya writes very much against this. You cannot tell from the beginning what the end will be. And you can see this particularly in human births, particularly, but you can see it in any seed you put in the ground. You can never dream or invent what the glory of the tree or the flower will be. You know? And out of this tiny little almost invisible seed comes this extraordinary life. And similarly, a human being, when you see a little baby, how can you think what the man will be or the woman in 20 or 30 years' time or even in 50 years' time? How is it that everything unfolds? So the origin does not tell you the story of the development and the end. You know? So he feels this is the wrong way of looking at the past as being the former. The past explains some of our aspects and our attitudes and so on, but it does not explain everything. And it always leaves open the possibility of doing it differently, of developing differently, and so on. So the archaeonomic is no good. Second one, he calls the analogical, where the focus is on the eternal present. And that's the case in many mystics. The present, it's the archetypal vision, which is, includes Platonic thinking, perennialist thinking, Indian thinking, traditional Western theological mystical thinking. Analogy, he writes, is indifferent to the possibility that the story of the universe has a meaning which is still in the making. You see, that's the, what they call the unfinished universe. So the third one he calls anticipatory. You know, the present doesn't give us all the answers. We have to take into account not only where we have come from our past, but where we are going, where the future leads us, or what future we can make. So he says, the anticipatory attitude rests on the future. It eagerly embraces a new cosmic story, namely the story that the universe is unfinished. So the way of anticipation wagers, it, it just wagers that something significant is working itself out in the universe. The universe, Teya always writes, it's the universe is going somewhere. We are going somewhere. You know, this, this gives meaning to life in a way that, you know, if you want to be negative or if you are depressed, you know, where are you going? We're not, you have no aim, no purpose, no, you know, we are going somewhere. He writes this again and again. We are going somewhere. It means that something is working itself out in the universe, that time is real and more being is coming into the universe from ahead, from up ahead. There is emergence, not just that. You see, in, in evolutionary terms, very briefly, the pattern is when evolution begins, the Big Bang, there is uh, divergence. You get the divergent sp species, you know, up to such profusion that we can only marvel. You know, I mean, it's just so unpredictable. The divergence of everything, the divergence of the types, and so on and so forth. Then now, <coughs> you get more, you get emergence, you get new things, and you get convergence. You know, you get certain lines of development running together or moving to closer to each other. See, and you could see this in the planetary reflection. Tia wrote very early on about planetization and globalization. Now, you can say, well, where has this gone wrong? What is actually wrong? What are we doing wrongly? Well, we are doing wrongly that we are only 
concentrating on the economic side or too much rather than also on the intellectual, the spiritual side, all the other aspects of being a human being, which we haven't really fully developed. You know, when you think of the mental health problems, when you think of the problem of aging, the biological decay of human beings and death and suffering, how much are they really integral to the story and how much can we positively, with promise, deal with them when we are at life's end. That's very, very difficult, psychologically speaking. But you can see that this dynamic vision of moving towards the future and seeing the openness and the possibilities can give enormous energy and uh, meaning and purpose to our action. And Teilhard was particularly interested in this. He talks about, you know, he has got two volumes of essays on human energy. Where do we get our, not just physical energy every day from, we need our sleep, we need our food, but where do we get the mental, psychological, psychic, and spiritual energy from? And how far are the religions particularly important as spiritual energy sources to give us vision, motivation, uh, confidence, trust, consolation, healing, all those things. And you know, I, I like to speak, um, Teya has in his early writings, this is in time, writings in time of war, he has a phrase where it says, trust life, trust life. Life is never mistaken. Follow life, assume, you know, acknowledge life wherever it bursts out. Uh, trust life. And I compare this, we have a word, word in German which is called uh, Urvertrauen, which is very difficult to translate. Ur meaning primary, elemental, you know, going back in time to time immemorial. Ur trust, Vertrauen means trust, that we are born, you know, and you can see this with any human being that is born or even any animal, anything that's born, when you, you know, you move, I, I was watching on television the other day the, the birth of a little um, apaco animal, you know, getting out of the womb of the mother, you know, and exploring water to get those four legs out, you know, pulling it. And you think the affirmation, as soon as this animal is out, or as soon as the opening the eyes, moving, breathing, sneezing, whatever. <laughs> and you think there is an elemental trust. You can't stop a child from growing or anything. You, you know, and all this is a, it's an elemental trust that life goes in the right direction. But we often interfere and make it go wrongly, you see. So I find this very, very affirmative, you know, that the trust and belief in life. You know, you get to know enough psychologists and psychological theories that people talk about, you know, how, how uh, you get full of mistrust and doing the wrong thing and all. I mean, I don't deny that we have negative experiences, but then you have to ask, what's the energy in that? And that is absolutely marvelous in Teilhard that he always asks himself, even in the very worst experience, and he turns around and he gets a grip on the experience of saying, what can I learn from this? Or what can even this negative experience teach me? And that's an absolutely marvelous empowerment, if you can make it your own, which is not easy. But I tell you, I've often tried it. 
and it, is, it works wonders. If you can get a grip on yourself to say you are not going down this road and get very depressed and very upset or very angry, I'm just going to stand back and try and take a different view and draw on an energy and get the spirit of God to help me to overcome this or to deal with this or to find a solution to my questions, to my difficulties. It works like wonders, you know, and we can have many, many witnesses who have talked about this spiritual energy, the kind of help that comes at the most unexpected moment, which energizes you and makes you strong to deal with questions you never thought you would have to face. See, so that, that's very, very important. Now, where are we? So I want to leave those three attitudes of John Holt. The book will be called, is called, The New Cosmic Story Inside Our Awakening Universe. And it comes out from Yale University Press in October 2017. I find this very helpful because we don't usually think in those terms. I've also, I think I've listed on your book list here, I've listed a book by Dave Pruitt, which is halfway down the list on Taya, well, on, uh, on ecology, religion, spirituality, and evolution. Dave Pruitt, 2012, Reason and Wonder, A Copernican Revolution in Science and Spirit. That's a marvelous book because he goes, you know, he goes through the different um, evolutionary stages or the discoveries. The humans have first discovered the immensity of space, you know, and what happened when the heavens were discovered and humankind could reflect on this and so on. So he devotes that. Then the immensity of time, you know, which was discovered much uh, later. And he, he's actually, he was another, he's a mathematical cosmologist, this man, and he was working for NASA in the States. I mean, he's very interested in Teilhard, but he, this is a book which describes his historical development in the history of uh, science and the history of humanity very well. He talks, he says that each of these stages are in fact a Copernican revolution. First the discovery of the immensity of space, then the discovery of the immensity of time with evolutionary studies. Now he says we are, this is his forecast if you like, we are at the third, at the step, at the threshold of what he calls a third Copernican revolution, which is the discovery how science and spirit converge. A new era unfolding where science alone, in the way it's been done in the past, is not enough because we want to have the inside story, you know, what, what John Holt called the inside, inside our awakening universe. The universe is awakening to more life, to more possibilities, but we are also awakening in our consciousness and in our spirituality. And I find this very, I mean, it's really revolutionized my own thinking. It, it really changes your attitude when you think through what this can actually, what this implies for the world, but also for yourself. When you think, come from a very different direction, think in evolutionary terms. So let me see what else I'm supposed to say on this. Um, now, I've got so much on my tech, on my list there that um, let's look at at um, new story with um, the rise of the spirit in evolutionary universe. I think I have given you things, but I've written it together now. 
responding together to the call of the spirit. Now, the rise of the spirit in the evolutionary universe, I've got a whole lecture on this, which I will quote from a little bit later. Much of this is inspired by Thea de Chardin and Thomas Berry, uh, who reflected, as I said, on the need for a new story since the 1970s. Now, sometimes this new story earlier on was called the epic of evolution, i.e. the story of an emergent universe with a new discovery of space and time, cosmology, geology, biology, all pointing to more and more kinds of very, very radical transformations in the history of life and in the history of humanity. So the new story of emergent evolution, as it's been discussed in, in by some scientists and also by, by uh, Thomas Barry, he first talks about and he says that Teilhard was really early on acknowledging this in his book, The Phenomenon of Man. The first, the galactic processes, what happens in the cosmos. Then the geobiology, geobiological processes of the Earth. And then the cultural, the cultural processes unfolding in what we traditionally call history. You see, and what is marvelous with this picture is that history, as we usually think of, we don't connect to biology and we don't connect it to the stars. But then you see it as one big uh, canvas where all these processes at some stage are interconnected and have importance and implications for each other. That's very, very important. So, Barry, what I like very much, he talks about the great work that we have to do. Now, interestingly enough, that's a quotation from Teilhard. In the First World War, there's a passage where he writes in one of his things, we have a great work to do, and I think Barry, must have taken it from there. The great work that is before us, we have to do this, i.e., we have to really change the world. Now, for, for Barry, he says, we have looked at the world, at the universe from outside, as if it were an object. All the objects are really, or should be understood, as a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And the communion belongs to the spirit. It is ensouled. It is what the ancient philosophers used to call the world, the anima mundi, the soul of the world. It is alive. It is ensouled. So what I explained before, this diver emergence, divergence, convergence, it is a movement towards greater centration, a coming together, a unification, finding the unity of all these developments, and a process of spiritualization in and through matter. So, Barry writes a lot about this, and you have this in different, I if I have time, I can quote from this later. Um, no. So, what he, he talks, Barry says that Teilhard had five major concerns which he feels are very important. He knows about the evolutionary origin and development of everything that exists, including the human phenomenon. But then he sees the human as a consciousness, he calls the human the consciousness mode of the universe. And he says Teilhard also made a shift from, religiously speaking, from the emphasis on redemption 
the emphasis on creation, to be aware of this created novelty and excitement. So there is a major theological shift when the cosmic cries of St. John and St. Paul become more prominent than the salvation story. This is, I mean, this gets very theological. But he's very important for the understanding of the activation of energy. I mentioned that already. And he sees science as absolutely essential to the total Earth process. Now, what, uh, what uh, Thomas Berry writes a lot about is that we really have to reinvent the human species. That's the first thing he says, that we haven't really understood ourselves properly. We don't really know our possibilities and we don't know our connections. We have to also change, you know, government, education, economy, industry, to be in sympathy with and connection with the earth as a living reality. So he feels that we have lost the spiritual sense in our modern industrial societies and we have to develop a new earth consciousness in order to create a new earth community. Now he says, how can we do this? How can we actually make an effort to make all these changes? Well, he says we have to draw on four sources of wisdom. We need wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. And these four sources of wisdom are not just religion and philosophy, as most people would say. No, he says the first source of wisdom is the wisdom and the, the knowledge of the native peoples around the earth, their wisdom that has been discovered only in the last 100 years or so. People have paid attention to the native peoples, whether in North America or South America or in Europe or in India, you know, you get all these studies now, native traditions which were not really known in that way before. Their wisdom, because they live so much closer to the earth and to nature. That's the wisdom of the native peoples. Second thing, which has also only been discovered or, or acknowledged, not really discovered, acknowledged in recent uh, decades, is the wisdom of women. The wisdom of women, right? The third is the wisdom of different philosophies and religions. You know, we put this usually always first, thinking the philosophers and the theologians and religious people, they have all the know. No, no, no. He starts with the native peoples, the women, then philosophy and religion. And the fourth, and this is very interesting, without the fourth, the other three can't work either. The fourth is what he calls the wisdom of science. He sees science, modern, modern science with all its development. Modern science, he calls the yoga of the West. The yoga of the West, which is a brilliant formulation and really a deep insight. The yoga of the West is science, but by itself, it's not enough. It doesn't take account of the other three. So that's a very, very profound insight, which can give you a lot to think about, because most people don't see, you know, they don't make these connections. He sees it as a totality, as a unity of coming together where we, you know, and that is very important for spirituality. Spirituality is not just out there, abstract, rational or non-rational, whatever. It has to be grounded and earthed. So it's the earthing. I talk about the earthing of spirituality. You not only need spiritual literacy, you need earth literacy, 
And you need, I've written a whole paper on this, you need the earthing of spirituality. It has to be earthed, connected to the earth. You just like electricity, if you come through as a current, has always got to be earthed, otherwise it's dangerous. And our philosophical, abstruse, religious, theological things can be very, very misleading if they're not properly earthed. So the earthing of spiritual literacy is very important. That's my formulation, not Thomas Barrett. Uh, anyway, I think I stop here for. I think I stop here in order for people to ask some questions because I could go on and on, and you will never get any lunch, nor any reason, no, 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 any possibility to ask questions. So, if you want to ask questions, please do. So, you need to, you need to, yeah, just we can have ten minutes or so. Is that okay? Just a quick comment on, uh, almost in summary of what you have been saying. My favorite quote from Heart, The Heart of Matter is that wonderful poem called The Hymn to Matter that oh. he has at the end of it, in which he describes the universe as the triple abyss of stars and atoms and generations, <laughs> including the cosmic universe, the subatomic universe, and the universe of self-reflective consciousness, yeah. which is the noosphere. Yeah, the noosphere, right, yes. Thank you, that's a good contribution. Sorry. Sorry, the Yes, 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 that's true. That's Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult to understand, um, but uh, you can get scientists, you know, you get Christians in science, there's a whole group, of, and you get uh, people who, who are quite strong believers, but uh, there are certainly fewer in number than those who are non-believers, you know, in terms of the spiritual uh, dimension of the universe. So I think the, the scientists have not been driven to go far enough. They see it too much in an external sense and in an inward sense. If you want to balance out both sides, you come to a much more comprehensive, integral view, which is a stronger and more holistic vision, which is more helpful to human beings, I think. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Thank you. That was absolutely wonderful. Um, I just wish I had a recording. It was, it was so wonderful what you shared. Um, I wonder if you could comment on two things that I'd particularly like to follow up. Was it the mass on the world or the mass of the world and the world heart? And also, I understand um, that uh, Pierre de Chardin, uh, Thierry de Chardin, that uh, I think in his diary, he made a reference to Rabindranath Tagore's Gitanjali. And I wonder if Sorry, you... he made a reference to... To Rabindranath Tagore's Gitanjali? Yes, Gitanjali. I'm... I'm writing a book on Tagore, oh, yes. and I'd be very interested in following up that connection and the effect that um, Gitanjali had on, on um, Chardin, please. Well, that's, you can only speculate about it. I mean, he's written, he, 
he got interested in Hinduism, particularly in Vedanta, and he was very much aware of Tagore. He spent about three months in India in, in the 1930s, in the early, I would have to look up the exact date. I can't remember whether it was 33 or 30 itself. I've got lists of these dates, but not all in my head. Um, he was aware, you know, he was always aware of the kind of intellectual atmosphere because he met a lot of people. He met an incredible number of people. And Tagore, uh, uh, Tagore is a very interesting, uh, very interesting. I have written on Tagore and education and Tagore and, uh, uh, I'm very interested in Tagore and the connection between West and East in Tagore. But uh, Teya was, I think, only uh, aware very much at the margin of his very large center of objects of awareness or subjects of, you know, that he communed with. So I can't really answer that question. Yes. 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 Yeah, that's true. I would quite agree. I would quite agree. He was probably not uh, quite as uh, much aware of that than you would be because he didn't study Tagore in any depth. And uh, I mean, I don't think he ever went to Shantiniketan or, you know, but uh, uh, there, is, there is quite a bit of parallelism. I would agree. I would agree. Any Um, you spoke about the greening of religion. See? You spoke about the greening of religion. Oh, yeah, the greening of religion. The greening yeah. of religion. But it seems to me it's a shallow greening of religion that where I've witnessed it in, um, in many of our religions today, it's often ticking boxes of um, putting solar panels on the roof of the church <laughs> or doing the recycling correctly. <laughs> they seem to be tick box items, but they're not really going to a deep greening of religion, changing the ritual, mm. moving from the salvation mm. theology mm. to the redemption theology, and seems to be leaving out those four wisdoms mm. that Thomas Ferry spoke of. And I wondered, what is it? How can that change? You need a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> no, what is it? I mean, what is it that, that churches can do today that, that, that can start to shift from the eco-congregations that we hear about to changing the deep fundamental rituals that allow people to connect to the, to the earth? Well, I think in very small experimental groups that is happening sometime, but uh, I would uh, like to point out the very slowness of evolution. You know, we think in terms of a human life, which is very, very short, and we want to see changes quickly and very radically. But when you think how long these processes have taken and how slow they are, we are perhaps a little bit too impatient. But I would agree entirely with you. You need a real 
rethinking, restructuring, reorganization. You know, you need in the Catholic Church, you need the ordination of women. That's the first most urgent necessity. I mean, spirituality is too much, and um, Sonder, how you say this in English, it's a specialist compartment, you know, at the top somewhere, and most people are not interested in it, or the clergy is not particularly <coughs> interested in spirituality in general, in my experience. So, <laughs> so it, you know, how do we understand it? You know, what is it? How can you be a spiritual person in a very mundane, industrial, commercial world? It's very difficult, actually, you know. So, uh, what are the values? What are the uh, dominating or the, the, the essential shaping values in our society? Well, you only have to listen to any of the discussions on Brexit. It's all about money and the economy. It's not about a single idea at all, as far as I can make out. You know, so that's pretty impoverished in terms of human life. You know, money, I mean, just see, and see the almost evil surplus of money that some people have, even if they give it away to foundations. I mean, I just can't comprehend how society can allow some people to be so dirty wealthy when people are starving in the streets or even sitting in front of big supermarkets and small supermarkets in any city in Britain, you know. It's, you, know you don't have to go to the so-called developing world. You find plenty of poverty in our cities. And how is it that we don't have more sense of community or responsibility? I mean, there are plenty of volunteers. I don't want to deny any kind of good work because I've got a great admiration for what is being done. And a lot of people are trying, or quite a few people are trying really hard. And we have had, I think you have always got to see the ambivalence. You know, we have had a lot of new developments. And you can study this with just the new words that have been created. I'm very interested in when, you know, in words like pacifism or alerts of equality, when certain words actually come into the language, people suddenly have, ah, there's something new, a new moment of recognition. Something is happening. When you think of all the NGOs we have, you can say the NGOs are, are institutions that are, uh, are global institutions. There is an awareness and a, and a willingness to, or you look at Médecins Sans Frontières or Oxfam or some of these big, very big uh, world vision. I mean, there's so many, so many NGOs. This UN, the UN is trying, but you can also see all the flaws in the system and what goes wrong and that people misuse resources or where they do the wrong thing. So I have not got a single answer and there is no single answer. There will have to be a lot of different answers for different situations. So, you know, I think you can only try in your parish or in your whatever group or you belong to and you will always find people who are willing to try, give it a try, and other people who will be dead against it. So. You always have this kind of thing. Yes. Yes. It is very tough. No, but the same is true. You look at some of the Hindu gurus and what they're doing in India. I mean, you can, or you look some of these. Uh, Islamist uh, preachers, you know, I mean, you find bad examples everywhere. You know, you look at extreme Orthodox Jews or whatever. I mean, you can find examples anywhere. I don't want to take any particular group and say these are the baddies. You know, the baddies are everywhere. So 
uh, what is really to, is to strengthen this sense of awareness and consciousness and community to make, you need to change the, the modus vivendi, the, the atmosphere, the understanding, you know, and that, that's, it's a very slow process. But I think the important thing is not to give up hope, you know, I mean, not to give up hope, not to give up hope. This is important, so. We've, we've <laughs> just got, um, I think we'll do one, two, three, if that's okay, because it's okay, yeah. we're so running over into lunch. So just three, and then we'll come back and. Well, you you choose the three. Yep. You have from the back there. I think Thomas Berry offers a, a, an answer to this gentleman's question when he says that the challenge to Christianity today is not to introduce the world to Christianity, but to introduce Christianity to the world, <laughs> to, to make it more understanding and accepting of. The yeah. physical reality. It's a good, very good quote. Yeah, very good quote. <laughs> um, yeah, that sort of ties up with what you were, um, what is, what has been said. But I'm working at the moment with Syrian Christians and Syrian Muslims. Oh yeah. And I'm just wondering, what sort of level is connection um, among the different faiths is, uh, about understanding this this new vision? I mean, are there any kind of interfaith um, kind of groups, or I, I know there are big conferences at academic level. But is it percolating down to um, different religious groups? Are they are they discussing things at this level at all? Do you, do you know of anything like that? Well, I mean, you you would have to look at the Earth Charter website. Right. I don't know that. I mean, there are lots of groups, particularly among young younger people, who are interested in looking at what the Earth Charter has to offer and what is this, its intention. But you can also look at the Pope's encyclical. Laudato Si, which yes, has raised yeah. many uh, discussions and groups and a not an interest. Which I have quite a lot of passages to quote from there, but there's just not the time to uh, do it all. Yeah, yeah. So I feel there are new sprouts of hope. Yeah. You know, there are new beginnings. People are really, some people are really trying, and you feel, well, maybe the door is opening, and each time it's opening a little wider, you know. But we have not to give up hope. It's very difficult to do this sometimes because you feel the situation is sometimes very dire and very depressing. But I think we have to uh, go for hope. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Thanks very much. Any other? Was it, there was one, la, one more. <laughs> okay. Um, I was just going to say the challenge for me is if if humanity is the consciousness mode of the universe, then. For me, the question is, what is the universe asking of me, asking of humanity? Mm. And, and, and I think it involves a complete shift in consciousness, one that is about loving the earth and everything in the earth as though it's, it's our kith and kin. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, this is really what a, a really uh, vivid, lively, theology that takes these questions seriously and, and calls uh, our particip for our participation in taking responsibilities really, as it says in the encyclical, to take the world, the earth is our home, and to take care of the earth, the responsibilities that that involves, and the, the seriousness and the full engagement with which we have to do it it really calls us in a new way, this great urgency, and we are not always aware of this because 
we, we like our lifestyle, we just go on living from day to day, and we often don't think of these questions. It's only when you suddenly sit still or read something or have a discussion that you suddenly, suddenly it clicks and you think, ah, I should really do this differently. Yes, yes, to, to love, to be open, to connect, to support, to heal. I mean, this is very, the power of love. I've not said anything about this, but that's a very big theme in Teya, probably more than in, in Thomas Berry. I mean, he has such powerful pa passages about love. Uh, and what is very, very extraordinary, I mean, he talks about love being the deepest, greatest cosmic force. You know, love is the cosmic energy, and it comes out in human energy and in our connections, our friendships, our families, our, but how love, he feels we have, he says, our idea, our loves are too small. We are, you know, we are just our little family, our tribe, and that's it. To love, but can we love the earth? Can we love all people? Or is that impossible? He asks himself this question, but he feels that he wants to have the process of what he calls amorization, a new kind of love that is much stronger, much more conscious, much more effective, and much more connected. Well, that's a whole, you know, to develop human energetics as he wants it. He felt love was at the center of that. And he feels love, that is the center of the heart of God. It's love, you know, love that is poured out freely and generously, and that is healing, and that is gracious, you know. So there is a lot to be done. But I mean, the, the, the great religions have that in the, all in their message. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Now, I thought I'll start where do we go from here with some passages, as I haven't had a chance to read you out three or four passages. I'll just read you out three passages from each. Because in a way, as you will gather, those of us, those of you who haven't read anything or very much of Thea or, or Thomas Barry, it's actually very difficult to communicate their message in a nutshell. You have to really spend time and energy in thinking about it and reflecting. I mean, I go back to these works and each time I, I discover something new and I've read them many times. And, you know, it's, it's, there is a depth in the writings of both these thinkers which is quite extraordinary. It makes you really, it really challenges your own thought. At least it challenges my thought, but I think a lot of people have this experience with both uh, Thomas Barry and Thea. Now, I begin this Thea because I said something, and I've just found the passage. I told you that he wrote, he began writing in 1916, in writings in time of war, is the English uh, translation. But they didn't come out till very, very much later. And these were all the essays he wrote during the First World War. And he had a very close um, relationship with his cousin, with his cousin Marguerite, who became a uh, prize-winning novelist, but who at the time was the um, director of a very well-known Catholic girls' secondary school in Paris. And the school is still in existence now. And she was a very wise woman. She was one of the early women to study philosophy. She had a very close friend called Leontine Zanta, who was the first woman to do a um, um, doctorate in philosophy in France, who was an extraordinary woman who Thea got to know very well indeed, and there's a marvelous correspondence between these two. 
I've not said anything about Teilhard's very important friendship with women because he feels the feminine is really the unity. And Leontine Zanka, she is one of the very early feminists from the 1920s in France who influenced deeply, um, what is she called, uh, Sartre's Simone de Beauvoir. She acknowledges the influence of this woman and they were using the word feminist and Teilhard knew about feminism and he writes about feminism and women in the church in the 1920s and 30s, believe it or not. It's extraordinary. But uh, when he came out of the war and he discovered that he couldn't publish any of his writings except one, which is called the Nostalgia for the Front, where he talks about the energy and the new way of life that emerges even out of the killing fields of the First World War, which is extraordinary. But he uh, writes to his cousin, I've got the feeling that my manuscript will just pass from hand to hand and will not see the light of day for a long time. And that's exactly what happened. They didn't see the light of day for 50 years. And it's so extraordinary. But what happened from the late 1920s onwards, and this is also extraordinary, he was very friendly with uh, another aristocratic family. He met the young man in, in the war as one of the soldiers, Max Beguin, and his father. They were all interested in paleontology and in bones and in you know, the work that Teilhard did scientifically, but they were Catholics and they had extraordinary ideas. And there's a marvelous correspondence between Teilhard and Max Beguin, which came only out about five or six years ago. So there's still material which hasn't been published. But Teilhard then had the offer of, his wife, of Max Beguin's wife, Simone Beguin, who said, I will type those essays, you know? And what they did from then onwards, from before the 30s, everything he wrote, someone typed in its cyclist line, and it was distributed, not secretly, but to all the people who were interested or came to his lectures and wanted to read something. So the divine milieu, everything was distributed. There was a huge, I mean, in the thousands, not in the hundreds or in the 20s, in the thousands at some stage, what Teilhard wrote. So there was a kind of readership in France, in England, in the USA, and then later with French, with people who lived in the Far East. So that's very extraordinary that some people knew his work without it ever having been published before he died. So the first, very first essay from 1916 is Cosmic Life, where it's really about his, his, I mean, his mystical relationship, if you like, with the experience of the Earth, um, where he writes, I only want to write, because I've quoted this, I can't read very much because it'll take too long. I have contemplated nature for so long and have so loved her countenance, recognized in unmistakable as hers, that I now have a deep conviction dear to me, infinitely precious and unshakable, the humblest and yet the most fundamental in the whole structure of my conviction is that life in italics is never mistaken, either about its road or its destination. No doubt, it does not define intellectually for us any god or any dogma, but it shows us by what road all those will come that are neither lies nor idols. It tells us toward what part of the horizon we must steer if we are to see the dawn light grow more intense. I believe this in virtue of all my experience and of all my thirst for greater happiness. There is indeed an absolute fuller being and an absolute better being 
and they are rightly to be described as a progress in consciousness, in freedom, and in a moral sense. Moreover, these higher degrees of being are to be attained by concentration, purification, and maximum effort. Now listen to this, and this is directly connected with Barry's appeal to Barry. The true summons of the cosmos is a call consciously to share in the great work that goes on within it. It is not by drifting down the current of things that we shall be united with their one single soul, but by fighting our way with them towards some goal still to come. That's the openness to the future, and that's a great work, and that's the, the work, the word that inspired Thomas Barry to call about, the, to write a whole book about the great work. Then he says, immersed in God's creative action. This is another section from the cosmic life, I think. Just a minute. Um, yes, it is all from the cosmic life. It's too long to read all, but I read some passages. The world is still being created, and it is Christ who is reaching his fulfillment in it. When I heard and understood that saying, I looked around and I saw, as though in ecstasy, that through all nature I was immersed in God. You know, it's in italics. Through all nature I was... It's a bit like John Mayne writing about the presence of God and how we subsist in God. That's a similar kind of idea. We through all nature, through all life, if you say, we are immersed in God. The whole inextricably tangled and compressive network of material interconnections, the whole plexus of fundamental currents, once again confronted me, just as it did when, I first, my, when first my eyes were opened. But now they were transfigured and animated. Their charm, their appeal, all beyond number and matter, measure appeared to me in a glow of illumination, and I saw them hallowed and divinized in both their operation and their future. God is everywhere, Santa Angela of Foligno said. God is everywhere. So he writes, God is vibrant in the air and so on. He's at work within life, shines through and is personified in humankind. The deeper I descend into myself, the more I find God at the heart of my being. The more I multiply the links that attach me to things, the more closely does he hold me. The God who pursues in me the task as endless as the whole sum of centuries of the incarnation of his son. So he talks about the blessed passivities and the activities, the cosmic love, the kingdom of God, and the cosmic love may be reconciled. The mother, he talks about the the bosom of Mother Earth, which is in some way the bosom of God. Uh, natural evolution, so it goes on about evolution. I can't, I just read the prayer at the end. He, he finishes up, uh, these early essays often finish up with a prayer to the ever greater Christ, and he finishes up this whole essay with the following words. A prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, you truly contain within your gentleness, within your humanity, all the unyielding immensity and grandeur of the world. And it is because of this there exists in you this ineffable synthesis of what our human thought and experience would never have dared join together in order to adore them. 
element and totality, the one and the many, mind and matter, the infinite and the personal. It is because of the indefinable contours which this complexity gives to your appearance and to your activity that my heart, enamored of cosmic reality, gives itself passionately to you. I love you, Lord Jesus, because of the multitude who shelter within you. This is the multitude of human beings. And who, if one clings closely to you, one can hear with all the other beings murmuring, praying, weeping. You, the center in which all things meet and which stretches out over all things so as to draw them back into itself. I love you for the extensions of your body and soul to the farthest corner of creation, through grace, through life, through matter. Lord Jesus, you are as gentle as a human heart, as fiery as the forces of nature, as intimate as life itself, you in whom I can melt away and with whom I must have mastery and freedom. I love you as a world, as this world, which has captivated my heart. And it is you I now realize that my brother man, even those who do not believe, sense and see through the magic immensities of the cosmos. Lord Jesus, you are the center toward which all things are moving. If it be possible, make a place for us all in the company of those elect and holy ones whom your loving care has liberated one by one from the chaos of our present existence and who now are being slowly incorporated into you in the unity of the new earth. And then he finishes up on another paragraph saying, to live the cosmic life is to live dominated by the consciousness that one, i.e. he or each of us, is an atom in the body of the mystical and cosmic Christ. The person who so lives dismisses as irrelevant a host of preoccupations that absorb the interest of other people. Such a person's life is open to larger horizons, and such a person's heart is always more receptive. There you have my intellectual testament. That's the end. So that's the end, written in 1916, before the battle, one of the big battles at Verdun. So uh, that is living in the divine milieu. I could give you many more passages, but I can't do this now. Um, yeah, I will now stop here and just read something from Thomas Berry, and then I'll say a few words, and we can have a discussion afterwards. How much time do we have for discussion? I must have a look. We have a discussion. We have a tea break at 3, and then we have questions. Yeah, we have some time for discussion afterwards. Okay, now then. Um, Earth spirituality. This is a passage from Barry. Uh, from, from the book, The Sacred Universe, The Spirituality of the Earth, is a whole um, essay that he's written where he talks about the emergence, emergence of life and of, of all things, living things, as the numinous maternal principle out of which life emerges. So the Earth spirituality, he writes, the spirituality of Earth refers to quality of Earth itself, not the human spirituality with special reference to the planet Earth. Earth is the maternal principle out of which we are born, 
and from which we derive all that we are and all that we have. We come into being in and through earth. Simply put, we are earthlings. Adam is really an earthlings made out of earth. Earth is our origin, our nourishment, our educator, our healer, our fulfillment. At its core, even our spirituality is earth-derived. The human and earth are totally implicated, each in the other. If there is no spirituality in earth, then there is no spirituality in us. <coughs> Not to recognize the spirit dimension of earth reveals a radical lack of spiritual perception. And then he talks about the Chinese. Very, very interesting. Uh, we need a spirituality that emerges out of a reality deeper than ourselves. Spirituality that is as deep as the earth process itself. A spirituality that is born out of the solar system and even out of the heavens beyond the solar system. For it's in the stars that the primordial elements take shape in both their physical and psychic aspects. So he says, today we are in a new position where we can appreciate the historical and the cosmic as a single process. This is the vision of Earth's human development that will provide the sustaining dynamic of the contemporary world. We must nourish awareness of this, this vision. See, this is taken from uh, a, a special article he wrote, an essay on the spirituality of the Earth, and he's really aware that, you know, that we have to, we have to change in our approach and in our understanding when we speak of the earth, he says, when we speak of earth, we are speaking of a numinous maternal principle out of which all life emerges. So the universe itself manifests the spirit, the sacred. You know, he talks about the primordial prime, uh, maternal principle, which in some cultures is called the great mother or the corn mother or the spider woman among the Native Americans. So there, there is a lot here. There is really a lot here that one have to, uh, has to uh, grapple with. You see here the fourfold wisdom. I want to just uh, read a little bit of this. This is written in the opening years of the 21st century, so fairly late. Uh, well, no, that's earlier. In the opening years of the 21st century, as the human community experiences a rather difficult situation in its relation with the natural world, we might reflect that a fourfold wisdom is available to guide us into the future. And that's what I gave you earlier on. And he writes, the wisdom of indigenous peoples, the wisdom of women, the wisdom of the classical traditions, and the wisdom of science. There is, he says, for the first time now, we begin to understand that the human project belongs in the care and under the direction of both women and men. This was a movement out of a patriarchal society into a truly integral human order. So the traditional Western civilization must withdraw from its efforts at dominion over the earth. This will be one of the most severe disciplines in the future. For the Western addiction to economic dominance is even more powerful than the drive towards political dominance. Then there is the epic of evolution, the contribution of science toward the future. The universe story is our story, individually 
and as a human community. In this context, we can feel secure in our efforts to fulfill the great work before us. And that's always written with two capital letters, great with G and work with W in capital. The guidance, the inspiration, and the energy we need is available. The accomplishment of the great work is a task not simply of the human community, but of the entire planet Earth. Even beyond Earth, it is the great work of the universe itself. So he speaks about this new age, the ecological age, and then I finish quoting. Presently, we are entering another historical period, one that might be designated as the ecological age. I use the term ecological in its primary meaning as the relation of an organism to its environment, but also as an indication of the interdependence of all the living and non-living systems of the Earth. That's a very good definition. Interdependence is a central word of the living and non-living systems. This vision of a planet integral with itself throughout its spatial extent and its evolutionary sequence is of primary importance if we are to have the psychic power to undergo the psychic and social transformation that are being demanded of us. These transformations require the assistance of the entire planet not merely the forces available to the human. Otherwise, we mistake the order of magnitude in this challenge. It is not simply adaptation to a reduced supply of fuels or to some modification of our system of social and economic controls, nor is it some slight change in our educational system. What is happening is something of a far greater magnitude. It is a radical challenge in our mode of consciousness. Our challenge is to create a new language, even a new sense of what it is to be human. It is to transcend not only national limitations, but even our species isolation to enter into the larger community of living species. This brings about a completely new sense of reality and value. Now, there is a lot in there which is quite radical and which we could talk about for a long time. But you can see what a visionary writer is. He writes so simply and beautifully, but you can see he has got this vision ahead of, you know, we are far, far away from that reality. But he calls us to, a, to the great work of helping to produce or to create this much more uh, integral community which includes all of us and all living beings and all... Um, all um, realities that are part of the universe. So he says, ultimately, the great work is the work of the universe itself. Now, this goes in a way, this understanding of the ecological age goes beyond Teilhard, because Teilhard lived 50 years, you know, he, he died 50 years before, and much happened in the second half or second half of the 20th century. So you get a different vision towards the end of the 20s beginning of the 21st century when, when, um, um, when Thomas Berry was still alive. But Teilhard was particularly interested in this. I mean, he was aware of some of these problems, as you can see in some of the texts that are quoted. But he was more involved with 
the need for energy resources for human action and for maintaining in the human community what he calls the zest for life. Uh, and he looked at the awakening of the spiritual potential, a much greater sense of awakening, of human beings into a spirituality that has an active approach to life, which is still very underdeveloped, he said, in contemporary society. We need, to, we need to give far more attention to the education of the human spirit, feed the zest for life in people by developing their spiritual literacy and awareness. Nurturing the human spiritual potential means the development of a spiritual awareness or consciousness which is understood as a different, deeper way of seeing to which he gave such emphatic witness. It's an all-embracing vision, a commitment to a depth dimension of human life which is traditionally understood as a transcendent dimension, but which becomes much more linked to the immanent um, dimension. It enables human beings to see their experience in a larger context by having a greater vision, by relating more widely and responding more effectively, by taking responsibility. This is an Indian, another Indian Jesuit, who talks about responsibility, cuts it up. It's how many, what abilities you have to respond to situations and questions and tasks. Responsibility, how much, you know, the more abilities you have to respond to things, the greater being you have, the, the more you can contribute. It's a very interesting thought, that. So it's about uh, responsibility towards themselves and others, towards the environment, nature, the earth, the human community, and ultimate reality, however named, often called the spirit, or in theistic traditions, God. Nowhere does Teilhard speak more often about zest, the French word goût, le goût de vivre, the zest to live, to love life. The zest for action, evolution, super living, and ultra evolution of the human species that in the essays written during the last 15 years of his life, collected in the volume Activation of Energy, where he reflects on the main lines of a spiritual energetics, the need to develop uh, a greater impetus to deal with the impetus of evolution with its drive towards a further development of the human species. This energetic is understood as what he calls the study of the conditions under which the human zest for auto-evolution, further self-evolution, even ultra-evolution, can form a compact group to meet the requirements of a world in a reflective state of self-transformation. So he talks about psychodynamics, a term coined in analogy to thermodynamics. And <coughs> he speaks, he says, humanities is at a crossroad. It cannot be considered simply as a state that has been reached, but it must be approached as a work that has to be done. We have again the great work idea that Barry took up so strongly. A work that has to be done. In his view, the future of humankind depends far more, I quote, of it depends far more on a certain passion for hard work than on a certain wealth of material resources. So he talks about it. We can have more and more things, more and more stuff, more and more material things, but it doesn't mean that we understand better. We might, in fact, understand less. You know, what we have to work with is this psycho, the passion for hard work. He means a passion to really 
see the purpose and the meaning of life and of our existence here and of society at large and of the different groups in society. So he is very concerned with this. Reflecting on the convergence of humanity and the role of energy in this process, Teilhard wrote in 1952, three years before his death, that it would be no exaggeration to say that the mankind of tomorrow, humanity of tomorrow, those standing on mountains of iron, coal, uranium, of wheat, would do no more than tick over if by some mischance there should be a weakening of its zest, not simply for subsisting and surviving, but for super living in the sense to live a better, deeper, more fully developed human life. He's always interested in this more. The taste and zest for life, for all life, human and new human, non-human, is essential for the future of people and planet. Similar to the way in which we are concerned to preserve the biodiversity of life forms, so we also need to take conscious account of and responsibility for maintaining what might be called the rich, I, I call this the rich nosferic diversity. The nosefer, I haven't talked about it, I have a whole section on the nosefer, which I'm going to read out if I can. Yeah, I will do a bit on this. The north, the diversity of ideas, of practices in the religious and philosophical field. You know, to see the, the vast religious and philosophical traditions we have around the globe, our whole global religious heritage uh, is, is complementary to each other. You know, it, it, it's like a big mosaic. It hangs together and forms a much larger picture than any of these traditions can can do by itself. So you get you get an access to wealth of spiritual resources, which is undreamt. I mean, just think of how much Buddhism has taken root in some Western countries and what a difference it makes to some people. I mean, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that would have been incomprehensible. Then people would have found it bizarre. And the interaction of you know Western science and technology, Eastern sources of wisdom, all these kind of things, is just extraordinary. I mean, I was in Lhasa in 2005, I think. You know, uh, we're up in, in, the, um, in the, the big stupa, in the, what is it called? The Potala, the Potala, the huge 16-story palace of the Dalai Lama, but it's also a very big stupa. It has a, you know, a, a beautiful temple, if you like, a place of worship. And what, what was very extraordinary, we went around as a small group and you know you have the Buddhist uh, chanting of the monks. You have the meditation. You have this very uh, solemn and sacred atmosphere. But then one monk, <laughs> one monk was <laughs> running away, just listening to his phone, <laughs> having uh, you know. I mean, you can imagine this on the Lhasa mountain of the Putala. Someone has a you know has an iPhone and is is phoning in the middle of some meditation session. You know, I mean. This is inconceivable. I mean, you can see how the revolutionary changes affect and have an outreach everywhere. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we actually doing? Um, so the zest for life is one of Tia's great ideas. It can help to transform the life of individuals by inspiring them to work for better life for others and for themselves, you might say, and contribute to the transformation of the life of humanity. I really like this zest for life. It's very, very um, inspiring what he writes about it. Now, if you want to ask me, let me just keep eye on the time. 
if you want to read more about evolution, particularly in Teya Bishada, most of his essays that he wrote on this theme of evolution between 1920 and 1955 are grouped together in a book called Christ, Christianity and Evolution. Christianity. That has also this note on the possible historical representations of original sin that got him so much in trouble. You find that Christology and evolution, Christianity in evolution, suggestions for a new theology, how I believe, where he writes about evolution. There is a lot in there. And another book which is also important is his earlier, The Vision of the Past. And he writes there a late note that is on the evolution of the idea of evolution. Because he first got ticked off. I mean, he had a uh, complete... Uh, complete change of mind after reading Henry Bergson's Creative Evolution, which was published in 1907 and was very much read and discussed uh, and made Bergson very famous during his own lifetime. He, he died in 1941. But unlike Bergson, who, who talks about creative evolution, uh, Teja speaks of evolutionary creation. Creation occurs through evolutionary methods, if you like. And he discusses this in great detail in his great book, The Human Phenomenon, which is difficult to read, and I don't recommend it as the first reading. Uh, but it is um, Mary Evelyn Tucker has written about it uh, in a book on TI in the 21st century, uh, which came out in 1906 or uh, 20, 2010 or whatever. I can't remember. It's around about that time. Th two or three. No, it came out. Uh, 2003. She writes, an important contribution of Teya's work is the creative manner in which he situates the emergence of the human as a unifying theme of the evolutionary process. The human phenomenon in its presentation of the fourfold sequence of the evolutionary process, and I've mentioned this before, galactic evolution, earth evolution, life evolution, and consciousness evolution, establishes what might almost be considered a new literary genre. Teilhard's comprehensive approach to all aspects of evolution is evident from his linking the evolution of the Earth and its continents with the evolution of life, and uh, it led him, together with his friend and scientist friend, Pierre Leroy, Father Pierre Leroy, who worked with him in Beijing during the war years, they founded the Institute of Geobiology, and they had continuous publications from there, which you can find in Teilhard's scientific works. So there is a lot to be taken off. Now, there's a whole area one could do a seminar on Godon evolution, but I can't do this now. Godon evolution, but people have written on that. Christ and evolution, Godon evolution. I want to say something just about the biosphere and the noosphere. I've talked about the biosphere, but I wanted to say something of the... No, I've lost it. Um, Wait a minute, wait a minute. What is very important? I'm very interested, as I said, in the creation of new words. I've talked about the biosphere, which was suggested by the Austrian scientist Edward Suess in 1875 precisely, in his book, The Origin of the Alps. He developed this concept then into a multi-volume work called Das Antlitz der Erde, 1883 to 1901, which has been translated as the Face of the Earth, published between 1909 to 1924. Now, Teilhard was an early reader 
of this book and a supporter of the idea of the biosphere. And he used, therefore, the title The Face of the Earth, which is a translated title of Seuss' work, The Face of the Earth. He liked it so much that he used it in 1921 for one of his own articles. But before that, in January 1918, when he was still in the trenches, he wrote an essay about the great monarch describing the rise of a unified thinking earth whose vision was originally inspired by his sight of the full moon in the sky above the earth. I often think about this. He first gave this essay the subtitle a serious fantasy in the moonlight, but he crossed it out and he called it the face of the earth. He saw over the torn and blackened earth, torn and blackened from the war, from all the, you know, show, from all the destruction, over the torn and blackened earth there rose the great monarch, he sees the moon, this evening as I saw the single block into which we are all at on the point of solidifying for the first time I had the feeling of emerging from our race and of seeing it as a self-contained whole. And I felt as though we were all linked together and floating in the void. When the thinking earth has completed its closing in upon itself, then only shall we know the true nature of a monarch. This evening, in the agony of the bloody schism, which at this moment is dividing the world, I saw the frontiers of mankind. I became conscious of the blackness and the emptiness around the earth. Even in this century, people are still living as chance circumstances decide for them with no aim but their daily bread or a quiet old age. You can count the few who fall under the spell of a task that far exceeds the dimensions of their individual lives. Unless adult humanity is to drift aimlessly and so to perish, it is essential that it rise to the concept of a specifically and integrally human effort. After having for so long done no more than allow itself to live, humanity will one day understand that the time has come to undertake its own development and mark out its own road. This is written in 1918. One and the same influence animates and holds together everything that thinks one single circle embraces all spirit and imprisons nothing. We can hardly perceive this higher and uncertain promise, circumscribed unity of the universe. Now, he was looking for word to catch the covering of the earth by consciousness, this floating planet in the void, in space. And he tries to express the intrinsic human oneness that is slowly emerging, but in the main has still got to be created. So he realized, during the first world war, he realized that humankind forms a single organic earth-wide reality that transcends individuals and groups. It can be studied like a living organism covering the entire globe, a network that stretches over the face of the whole world. And he described this vision also as an immense thing, like the rising of the pale moon over the sleeping earth. And he first wrote um, an essay, The Great Monarch, trying to describe this. Then he had the idea, maybe he should call this covering of the globe by the reality of humanity expanding. He should describe it 
as an anthroposphere, the sphere of the human. And he said, who will be the Zeus, the Zeus who had uh, created the word biosphere, who will be the Zeus of the anthroposphere? But that wasn't good enough. When the war was over, and he used to meet regularly the philosopher Edouard Leroy, who was a very distinguished philosopher in France, during the mid-twenties, they used to meet for weekly discussions. He and Leroy formulated this new word, nosphere, a word derived from the Greek word nous, for mind, in the sense of not the rational mind, but the, the, the soul, if you like, the heart, mind in the sense of an integrating vision. This became one of his major ideas, absolutely central to his vision of the world. Just as the zone of life or the biosphere is a living layer above the non-living geosphere, there exists another thinking layer, a sphere of mind and spirit surrounding the globe. The emergence of this noosphere is an important step forward in becoming human, in the process of transformation, uh, a process of transformation which Teilhard named hominization. All human beings are part of this the thinking, you must think of it in terms of the thinking envelope of the earth. Through their thinking, feeling, connecting, and interacting with each other, above all, and this is very, very important, above all through the powers of love, all humans contribute to the growth and expansion of the noosphere. While Teilhard was the person who first coined the word noosphere, it was first made known through Edouard Leroy's philosophical writings, and then also through the Russian geochemist Vladimir Vernatsky, who was at that time living and working in Paris. And some Russians sometimes claim that he invented the word, but he took it from these two Frenchmen. He didn't invent it. Um, in fact, Teilhard has clearly stated that in an article himself, which he wrote at the end of his life. Referring to the revolutionary transformation that took place at the end of the tertiary time, in evolutionary terms, Teilhard writes, our planet developed the psychically reflexive human surface for which together with Professor Leroy and Professor Vernatsky, we suggested in the 1920s the name Nosphere. And Teilhard used this word first in 1925 in a long essay on hominization which bears the subtitle, Introduction to a Scientific Study of the Phenomenon of Man. So you can see that out of the trenches, Teilhard has this vision of the oneness of the Earth, as if seen from the moon, surrounded a planet, which later on was, for us, became much more known through this iconic photograph of the astronauts of 1968, uh, an image which showed us the planet in space, which an image which carries the name, in case you don't know, it's called Earthrise, not Sunrise, it's Earthrise. And the ideas about the biosphere and noosphere are closely interconnected with debates about the environment, ecology, the future of humanity, and that of our planet. So Mary Evelyn Tucker, for example, describes the biosphere as Earth's layer of living things, and the noosphere as the Earth's layer of thinking beings. So, I mean, you can go on talking about this. This is a very interesting topic, and you can go on from the biosphere, the noosphere, you can go to the ecosphere and see how all this ecologically hangs together. I mean, it's a very, very rich subject, but it goes back to the 1920s, which is quite extraordinary. 
really quite extraordinary. Now, I think I should leave you some time for asking some questions. Or should we have a break first? What do you think? Have a break first? Yeah, and then come and have general discussion, concluding discussion. Yeah, and I won't read out anything more because all right, I won't get home. <laughs> It's in the, in the upper part of the island of Capri. Capri. It's a church. I've got the name. I can't remember. What, I think it was a Franciscan church, but I can't remember what it's called. But it's very well known. It's on the top. It's the upper part of Capri. You go up on the top, and there's a church there. Yeah, yeah, you will. It's called, I've forgotten what it's called, but it's run by Franciscans. And they have a big, it's an amazing, it's an, I mean, it's the size of this room. It's absolutely extraordinary. But it does not include humanity, <laughs> which is extraordinary. I know you know Brian Thorne. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Are you I working with him? Yes. Oh, how so nice. That's the course that we're offering at the Norwich Centre. Oh, gosh. Is he still doing courses? He's our consultant. I mean, but I, I wrote the course. What is your name? Is your name on here? Yeah, let me have a look. Oh, I used to know, uh, who I used to know, I can't remember the name. Friona isn't There used to be someone who used to work with Brian Thorne who did a PhD in, I can't remember what she's called now. It's about 10 years ago, 8, 10 years ago. Yeah. I forgot. I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. Right. What is it? Um, I'm from the little Kensington Centre for Centre group. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, you were. Tell me yeah. your name again. And anyway, it's wonderful to see your soul taking wind in this way and truly inspiring through your inspiration by these thinkers, writers. Yeah. You, you put me in the frame of mind in which I might be able to say some sort of cosmic square. various things that I'm painfully aware I've not mentioned which I even listed and I'd hope to mention but there's not enough time but what I want to mention before I forget it there is a conference of the British TR Association and the Alistair Hardy Trust in London on Saturday the 3rd of June ecology science and spirituality friends or enemies and that's really specifically about Alistair Hardy and Tian. you are welcome to take this away this is a program you can take this away you can also take away publicity from the distributors of my book, which list, which list most of the things I've done on TIA at least. And uh, that's it, I think. But uh, I am very aware that I had wanted to say something on TIA de Chardin being quoted in the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si. And I will just give you two quotations, which are not direct quotations from the encyclical itself, because the Pope only puts a footnote in about Teilhard, but he mentions him explicitly. But someone in the States, uh, um, a scholar in the States, has gone to a lot of trouble to lift up uh, passages from the encyclical which set forth, ex which, which are very much in the spirit of all of Teilhard's overall theology. Uh, and I just quote two passages from the encyclical, where you will see it uh, chimes in well with some of Teilhard's ideas. 
And then we have the questions generally on the uh, presentation or on questions you have. Creation is of the order of love. God's love is the fundamental moving force in all created things. In this universe, shaped by open and intercommunicating systems, we can discern countless forms of relationships and participation. This leads us to think of the whole as open to God's transcendence in which it develops. Faith allows us to interpret the meaning and mysterious beauty of what is unfolding. We are free to apply our intelligence towards things evolving positively or towards adding new ills, new causes of suffering and real setbacks. This is what makes for the excitement and drama of human history in which freedom, growth, salvation and love can blossom or lead towards decadence and mutual destruction. He also points out very clearly this ambivalence of all things we are involved with. Then, one last passage. The ultimate destiny of the universe is in the fullness of God, which has already been attained by the risen Christ, the measure of the maturity of all things. In Teya's words, that would be the omega point. The, the book doesn't say this, but the passages chime in very well with Teya's general intention. Here we can add yet another argument for rejecting every tyrannical and irresponsible domination of human beings over other creatures. The ultimate purpose of other creatures is not to be found in us. Rather, all creatures are moving forward with us and through us towards a communion, common point of arrival, which is God, in that transcendent fullness where the risen Christ embraces and illumines all things. Human beings endowed with intelligence and love and drawn by the fullness of Christ are called to lead all creatures back to their creator. This is from the encyclical, and that's very much in uh, Teilhardian spirit, I would say. And it's interesting, I was sent an email, this came already in November, and I want to circulate this for, um, an American professor of anatomy has launched a groundswell campaign for signatures to Pope Francis, addressed to Pope Francis, declare Pierre Teilhard de Chardin as J, a doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. Teilhard is already in all but name justly acclaimed as a teacher by excellence of the Universal Christian Church. Therefore, we ask His Holiness Pope Francis to declare him a doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. And then he goes on, why is this important? So on, and they quote, of Teilhard, here's a picture of him, and then a quote, we are one, after all, you and I, together we suffer, together exist, and forever will recreate each other. So that's from Professor, what is he called, Daryl Domming, who is anatomy professor in some American university, I can't remember now which one, but anyway, that's, oh yes, here we are, Howard, I don't know exactly where that is, anyway. Uh, these are my concluding words, but you can now ask me any urgent question that you want to have answered, if I can answer it. Yes, please. And thank you yet again. It was wonderful. We didn't really get a chance to clarify earlier um, how I could find out more about world mass and um, the, the mass of the world and um, the world heart. 
please. What's, what's the first word? Um, the the mass, the world mass, the mass of the world. The mass, you mean the, the writing, the mass on the world. I haven't, mm -hmm. I said something about it. Yes, I'm just wondering how I could progress. And also, you made a reference, if I heard correctly, to world heart. The world heart, the heart of God. That's a quotation from Teilhard. But where would I be able to find out more information about these two terms, please? Well, he uses them poetically and imaginatively. He doesn't really write extensively on this, the world heart and the mass on the world. The mass on the world is a special um, essay which you can find in the book Hymn of the Universe, which is a book not edited by Teilhard, but put together by a French committee, which has several very important things. I didn't bring a copy, and you can't find a copy anywhere in a British bookshop, but you can find it in libraries or in second-hand bookshops, because it was very widely produced by uh, Collins, uh, Collins Publishers, and it was just a little paperback which came out in, oh, I can't remember, early 70s or late 60s, called Hymn of the Universe, and in French, Hymne de l'Univers, and it has together uh, material from um, his first writings in time of war, and it has this Christ in matter, this very important essay, and it has the hymn, the hymn to matter, and it has the mass on the world, and then it has various uh, quotations of the Teilhard, which the committee has chosen and just called Pensée, following um, the great, uh, what is it called? Uh, gosh, uh, Pascal, yeah, my, my, uh, my memory is getting weak, particularly at the end of an afternoon. <laughs> uh, Pascal, yeah. So you get quotations by him. So you can, him of the universe, you can find mess in the world. And the mess in the world was a, it's a lyrical prose poem, if you like, which follows the uh, sequence of the acts in the Catholic mass, in the Christian mass, classically Anglican mass. But it is, you know, it is what he offers up to God is all our, accomplishments, everything that we do and everything that we suffer, all our pain and the transformation of this, making this the offering of the whole world, of the universe, and the way that it is blessed and becomes transformed, trans, uh, you know, transformed into something much more sacred. It's, a, it's an extremely fine prose poem. You have to read it and study it. We can discuss it at long. I had... I used to do this with first-class students who knew nothing about Teilhard, and they got extremely involved and very interested. And I had sometimes had Japanese students in my class, and they picked out that some of their, they have some women founders of new religious movements in Japan, and they say, they're just like our founders. You know, they sent the closeness to nature, the sacred kind of element, the way we can be blessed by being part of this natural world and to realize this. Very, very interesting. And then also how Teilhard reflects, you had got passages in there, how he reflects on, you know, how to turn something good, something, a bad experience, how to draw energy from suffering. He's written three short essays on the energies of suffering, the value of suffering, uh, particularly as he had two sisters. One died and the other one uh, died quite young. The other one uh, oh, she was about 30 years bedridden for, I can't remember what she had, but she was the secretary of 
they had the Catholic Union of the Sick, you know, a kind of uh, group that kept in touch by letter. And uh, her writings or her talks were edited as a book. And then Teya wrote the foreword. He wrote a kind of introduction, which is called uh, uh, the, the Value, the Energies of Suffering. What, and, and that's not something we would normally think of, that you can draw energies, energies for action or energies for attitudes or for thinking from suffering. You know, that suffering can actually be turned around and become a source of energizing or activating. I have a little bit about this in the book, The Divine Milieu, but it's more in these essays. And I mean, I sometimes give a talk just on these three essays, The Values of Suffering, but I haven't got much in my mind at the moment. But <laughs> it's, it's very, very important. And I often think of it because we don't normally have uh, the attitude that suffering is something that can give us energies. You know, we think of the depletion of energy and the destruction of energy. But how to, you know, you can see that this is, um, it's a spiritual act. It's the power of the soul, of an inspirited kind of attitude to think that you can draw an essence of activating energy from suffering. But he writes this about his sister. You know, he says, whilst I have run all over the world, seen all the continents, you have just been lying in bed suffering. You know, what's the sense of that? But you have perhaps prayed more and done more for the world than I have done. Kind of, he's very, very humble. And he sees how his sister has suffered all those years being permanently ill. And then still she's doing things and her attitude is positive. You know, that's, you know, that's a wonderful thing to to communicate it with and communicate it to people. Okay, Thank you so much. Sorry. You um, mentioned briefly that in the 20s. Sorry? You mentioned briefly that in, in the 1920s, he developed his understanding of original sin from an evolutionary oh, yes, perspective, yes. but was asked not to speak about it or yes. write about it. Could you say a little more about what is... Uh, you know, I have, you know, it's this whole thing that at that time when he wrote, in 19, whenever it was, 1990 or 1922, I think, uh, the church, the official Catholic uh, doctrinal authority, still upheld the view that monogenism, that humanity descended from one couple, which is biologically very, very unlikely and certainly not the current teaching. But he is really talking against this from an evolutionary point of view and how really, you know, there is no blemish or something that has been handed down biologically through the generations and eons of human existence, but it is, he, sees, he sees our doing ill and doing evil things more as a, almost as a diminishment or a lack of good. We haven't understood, we haven't developed enough rather than a reflection of original sin with which we are born. You know, he does not accept that. But you would really, one would have to look at the text in detail. I haven't got the text in my mind uh, verbally. You know, one would have, I have done work on this at home, but I haven't got it with me. Okay, so there, there are at least two essays that relate to this, but the essay that got him in trouble is the original essay. I think it's 1922 or 23, I can't remember exactly. You will find something about this in my biography, The Spirit of Fire. I was wondering if you could comment a bit on where you think we are today. On How? I was wondering if you could comment a bit on where you think we are today. We are today. We are today okay. in 
not here, but in the development of the new sphere. And some mm -hmm. people have said that the new sphere is a little bit like the internet. Yeah. And if it is like the internet, one might say, God help us, but how do we inject soul into the internet? Well, yes. If the internet is the new sphere, it doesn't seem to be very soulful. Not very strong or very soulful. soulful. Not very soulful. Well, it look, depends on which side of the internet you look at. But I can see what you mean. Um, well, some people, you know, there, there are people who have written on Tia and Simonetics, and some people think he's the patron saint of the internet. You probably know that. He was so interested in the increase of communications. And he really, you know, it says a lot about how in the 19th century, through railways, through the, uh, you know, through telephone, through uh, telegraphy and so on, how people got more in contact with each other and how this increased. I heard, when I first came to England in 1963, I heard a very interesting uh, lecture by a French Dominican who talked about Tia, and I can still see him there, uh, showing us this big diagram on a, on a blackboard, you know, how there is the globe and how mankind has you know, humanity has expanded and expanded, you know, from both sides, but now there is this great, everything has been covered. There is not a place on the globe which hasn't been touched by human hands or feet, and how this compression, no, there's no more, you know, centuries have gone by with the expansion of humanity over the planet, and now there is this compression, and he talks about uh, figuratively how the temperature rises, this psychic temperature, and and the interaction which leads to more uh, confrontation and perhaps more violence, but how we have to find new ways forward of collaboration and of goodwill. I mean, it's a very, uh, very difficult thing to say about the internet. What would we do without the internet? I mean, I curse it as much as you do, perhaps, but it, is, uh, it has its good side. You can find his text, you can find Tia's text on the internet, like many other book texts. So. I have no answer to your question. Do you think that if he saw the internet today, he would say that is the early pinnings of the new sphere? The early? Early pinnings or the early development of the, er the early evolutionary perspective of a global brain or, or, or that type of well, thing? Well, a global brain, I don't think he would say it's the early development of the noosphere because the noosphere began to develop as soon as human consciousness uh, became self-reflective and started creating you know, thoughts and ideas and literature and art and, I mean, you name it, and inventions. I mean, that's all part of the noosphere. And you can't say it's just beginning with the internet. That would be quite wrong. It would not give much credit to our forebears, the last 10,000 years of people doing things. Where would we be without all these inventions and developments and so on? Tia, as a student, I mean, as a student when he was about 20, 25, they used to have a game between three of these Jesuits you know, the French word uh, Descartes, I am, therefore I think. I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am, right? And Valencien, his friend Valencien would say, I will, therefore I am. I will. And Teilhard used to say, I love, and therefore I am. <laughs> it's interesting to see this difference. I love. It's and, and Satish Kumar says, I am, therefore you are. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. That's another one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <coughs> I don't know about the internet, but uh, concerning original sin, Kayard said that it was one of the chief obstacles that stands in the way of intensive 
and extensive progress in Christian thought. <laughs> and then he added, an embarrassment and stumbling block to the well-meaning but undecided, and also added, a refuge for the narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, wh wh where is this quotation from, please? Where is it from? Christianity and evolution. Lucian. Oh, yeah. You find these gems sometimes in the essays. I forget that. You know, until you really look for that particular one, you don't realize it's there. It's very good. <laughs> the weak mind, the, yes, the small-minded people. I just wanted to comment on uh, the internet. Uh, my view is just, it's just a tool. I mean, it's just like when paper was invented that accelerated a lot how people used to communicate because before, you know, on parchment or whatever, it was uh, only the very rich could afford it and so on. For me, th the internet is neither good nor bad. It's just a tool for accelerated communication and ultimately we can do what we want with it and it can be very good, but if, if we don't evolve and, and we carry on being uh, sort of obsessed by money and wealth, it, it'll accelerate the badness, I guess, so, um, mm. yeah. Um, I don't know whether, um, th there's a whole th new thing that Sheldrake, Rupert Sheldrake talked about morphological fields, am I right? But, um, morphic resonance, sorry, yeah. Morphic resonance. Morphic re resonance. Um, does that tie in with quite a lot of what Taylor was trying to say, the morphic resonance, because um, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping really <laughs> very wildly here, but I've always been very interested in how the Aborigines communicate, which is not by anything that physical, but it's something where there's, um, there's a kind of something out in the ether, shall we say. Mm. Now, um, I don't know if this fits in with morphic resonance, but there's a whole lot of ideas now that uh, I hope that someone can bring together. I think Rupert Sheldrake's tried a bit to do that, really. Yeah, I can't really answer your question. I'm not sufficiently well-versed in all these things, but... I think you have at least a parallelism. You know, you could find passages in Thea which would chime in nicely with Rupert Sheldrake's morphic resonance. I mean, I've heard him speak on it several times and read some of his work, but, you know, to, to really engage in that discussion at a meaningful, deeper level, one would have, I would have to have a lot more knowledge, you know. And similarly, what you asked this question about the ab Aborigines and their community, you know, what are the forms of communication we may not have found out. It may be difficult to study and to fathom how some groups of human people communicate. They know, may not all communicate in the way we do. I mean, it's the same when you say, well, how do animals communicate? How do birds communicate? Or, you know, when they are courting the various species of, of animals. I mean, we, there are lots of things we actually don't know. We have an idea, and we sometimes think we know, and then when more research gets done, we realize we didn't really know. We thought we knew, but we didn't, you know. So, I mean, there are many things we may not know about ourselves because we haven't really asked the right questions. So the questions determine a lot of the answers, you know, and you don't, uh, you don't, find, quest you don't find answers to questions you have never asked. <laughs> so we have not asked the questions of enough questions about spirituality or what it means or the power of love. You know, I mean, there are questions that have been asked but have only been explored in a narrow field. You know, it depends how far you extend your question. Who do you include in the circum, you know, in the circle of your question field, you see? So there are all sorts of arguments you can think of that 
different ways are possible. I mean, you see this with any kind of new innovative research that someone is doing or a group is doing, and they suddenly come up with ideas that nobody has ever thought of. You know? Why should they have asked this question? They come up then with such interesting answers. Also about all the brain research that's going on, you know, and which, which brain, which nerves influence which parts of our body. I mean, we can't know all this. You know, that's also part of, in a way, the inwardness of things, quite physical inwardness, and how it works in terms of the actual <coughs> communications, impossible to know. Um, perhaps then um, you can just talk about the link between the meditative practice and the sort of birthing of this new consciousness and paradigm <coughs> shift. The medical practice? Meditative. Meditative. <laughs> What's this? What is this? Oh, I touched it. Sorry, I'm running out of um, vocal power. <laughs> It's a very provocative question, which is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, impossible to answer. You would have to be a prophet. I mean, Teya was in many ways a prophet, um, but um, you can't prophesy, prophesy on everything. But I think meditation, deep meditation, which you also have, not just in the Eastern traditions, you have it in Christianity, whether it's called by different names, contemplation, prayer. I mean, they're all different aspects of something which is connected to the world of spiritual experience or spiritual practice. And I think, I mean, this whole fashion, <coughs> this fashionable aspect of mindfulness, you know, that is used in psychotherapy and in meditation, it shows that people realize that we live, certainly in the West, we live an overactive, totally overextended, much too noisy existence with too much consumption and too many things that really we would do better to be without. So, you know, you can see that meditation gives people, if nothing else, it begin with, it gives them a space of silence, you know, and stillness, and sometimes just also separation from the multitude of the life, a, a withdrawal, very deliberate, very conscious, to, to see how your mind, your soul, your spirit relates to the presence of God, if we would call it the presence of God. Some other traditions might call it something else, but we can see how, how this has a very deep impact on, or can have a very formative and deep impact on people of all ages. And I remember from, I was very much involved with world religions, teaching world religions in schools, the shop working parties, which goes back to the 1950s. And very famous example in one of the British Journal of Religious Education was always one primary teacher with five or six-year-olds. You know, she would set these kids round on the floor around the candle to be absolutely still and not say anything. And just let them sit, you know, and then the next week, one of these kids would say, Miss, can you do this thing with the candle again? You know, 
she liked it. They felt there was something very special. Which they didn't get at home, which they didn't get in a normal school lesson. You know, you can see how people need the space, you know, and most of us, we are so incredibly busy running around for work, family, cooking, shopping, uh, you know, whatever, looking after kids, getting them to school, getting them home, by, getting them to bed. I mean, there's always, there's no space where there's nothing. You have to almost live, I mean, I know this myself, even though my children have grown up, I've got plenty of grandchildren, everything. You know, you, it's very difficult to get some space for yourself, not in a, not in a, egoistic sense, but in a sense that you need for breathing space. You know, we breathe usually without consciousness. We are not conscious of breathing. It's something that automatically happens. You can't live if you don't breathe. You just breathe. But to breathe consciously, to find even three minutes to be still, to be absolute, and to withdraw from all your observations, close your eyes, or just sit still, it has a liberating effect. If nothing else, it has a very it creates space. It's like drawing the curtains from a window and having a much bigger scenery in front of you. You know, I mean, you just have a stillness, the emptiness of space around you, the stillness. It brings, I mean, yeah, I really feel it's like it is becoming aware of the divine. You know, not all meditation techniques do necessarily uh, <coughs> presented in that way, but I think it is very liberated. For you can do it with retired people, you can do it with people who are ill, you can do it with youngsters who are normally very, very lively and, and want to run around and you know jump in the sports field and want. You can get everybody to just stop for me three minutes, you know, stop and just sit. I mean the Brahma Kumars, with some of whom you may be familiar with this Hindu women's order, they have what they call the traffic control in their house. Every hour on the hour, a little bell goes, a little music is activated for one minute, everything stops. Whatever people are doing, they stop and it's quiet. It's just one minute, every hour, through day and night. And it's amazing, you get this idea, there are rhythms in our lives and time there is a time to be still, there's a time to be active, just as we need, we need our sleep. We don't always give ourselves enough sleep, you know. We run around and we think we can extend ourselves in every possible direction. But you can see that Western society is much too overactive and it's not good. It's not good. And you see, you know, I've seen people in India and then uh, you, go, you go to developing nations elsewhere. I mean, I don't say... You know, it's not always the poor or anything. It's just that people have a different attitude to time and the environment. And they can be really very happy, even though they have very few physical, very few material belongings. You know, they, it's, it's such a different lifestyle and it's a different rhythm from our constant being on the go, being on the go, being on the go. And when we are not on the go, driving a car or on the phone or on the internet, you know, we, we have so many things to do that we never sort of really relax enough space. When we're busy consuming so many things. See, so it's, it's a very, very um, problematic situation that we're in. Very problematic. Thank you very much for your 
talk is brilliant. I have a slightly awkward question. Yes. <laughs> you have been talking about love at the heart of the universe and uh, the uh, openness to the possibility yeah. of, the, of love even at the end of life. And mm, you talked about the concept of author time, basic trust that yeah. we're born with. So my question is the, really the problem of evil. We maybe we can say that because we live in the rich part of the world, but I don't know if it's the majority of people, but enormous numbers of people in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, in all over the world, live with they're born into a horror story. Um, and so, yes, so my question is something about that. How can we say that mm, there is infinite love that people can be born to trust? Well, I would have to deconstruct the question. It's, uh, it contains a lot of assumptions which I do not necessarily agree with. So my answer has to be somewhat nuanced. Um, poverty does not necessarily mean unhappiness or lack of satisfaction in living a good life. I mean, I have seen very poor people, i.e. people who have hardly any physical material con uh, possessions at all. You know, I had a bearer, a bearer, our bearer in, in Delhi, who was a very simple, wonderful old man who said his prayers every day and who was absolutely full of radiant happiness, even though he lived with the smallest amount, the smallest amount of space and the smallest amount of goods. But he was a man who was much happier than many, many people in the West. Many, many people in the West. So I think this question of material goods and what you have to eat and what you have to live in and what you do uh, is it is very very important and i don't want to deny anyone these goods but the question of the amount of quantity of these goods in relation to your own life is very relative very relative and you can see this also in the voluntary poverty of monks in all religions where you get monastic communities who very deliberately divest themselves of virtually all goods except the essential ones for survival. So th there are lots of questions to be asked. And I think, you know, what we have to know now is we have an immense wealth in the world, in uh, natural wealth, mental wealth, physical wealth, economic wealth. The question is now, have we developed um, an adequate sense of responsibility to care for the earth, for all living things, for ourselves, for human society, and for the good of, see when children are born, this ur trust, with, with primary elementary trust. The question is also always, what is the education, by which I mean, what is their experience in the immediate family circle or whoever brings them up? In the society, are they born into war? Are they born into peace? Have they got enough to eat? I mean, there's so many questions. But until the child develops, he cannot see. I mean, if the child developed under ideal conditions, 
it is certainly more likely, whether it's guaranteed is a different question, that that child becomes a fully rounded, mature, uh, balanced person. Uh, and that is in itself a richness which many human beings on Earth lack. You know, we have a tremendous responsibility. So I feel in many ways the question is for politics and for religion, the question is really education is, in my view, the key to many things. Education, education, education. Uh, and that's not just mental education, but physic not physically education alone, but the education of the heart, the education of thinking, the education of, uh, when I talk about love, the way Teilhard uses it, and he's by no means the only one. The extraordinary, astonishing thing for me was to discover that the, the first Russian sociologist who developed under, um, under the Russian, at the Russian Revolution, Petrim Sorokin is called. He has written an amazing book. He became the founding professor of sociology in Harvard when he left the Soviet Union in the 19, late 1920s, 1930s. And he has written on the ways and powers of love, a book that came out in 1954. He did an enormous number of um, sociological investigations about what makes a saint, what makes a good neighbor, wh well, what makes a good neighbor. He came up with the idea, and this is a, uh, it's an investigation which is based on, you know, on statistics and so on. He came up with the conclusion that a good neighbor has similar qualities to what the Catholics would name a saint, you know, <laughs> a good neighbor to be, to be communicative, to help, to be available, and so on and so forth. Very, very interesting. Now, Peter M. Sorokin has this extraordinary book about the powers of love. And very si he has very similar ideas to Teilhard. Neither of these men knew of each other's existence. I mean, I find, and they lived almost during the same period of time. I've written a whole article on this. It's very under-researched, or not at all researched. Sociologists have written on Sorokin. They were interested into, in him until Talcott Parsons came along and uh, Harvard's, um, Harvard Fashion of Sociology went over to action theory and all these things. And then Sorokin went into the background and he got some uh, Welsi patron to give him big, uh, quite a big research grant. And he spent 10 years just investigating with his uh, collaborators, uh, investigating the power of love. And he has got similar expressions to Teilhard. And both these men, from very different backgrounds, they think that the human society, the global society, humanity has not given enough research effort and thinking about how to animate and extend the powers of love for the transformation of human groups and all of society and all of politics. It's extraordinary. It's really extraordinary. This book was reprinted, and I first came across it in, I think, in 2000, 2001, when I was at an American religions conference, American Academy of Religion. It has been reprinted in the 50s by, no, 1954. They reprinted it around about 2000 or so. The Templeton Foundation has reprinted it, and they were selling it. And I got hold of this, and I've just been amazed about this. So I feel, you know, a lot of powerful ideas are needed to animate people to change their ways of doing things. I mean, it is possible, but you have to start somewhere. And you have to start in, you know, in launch communities that are 
experimental and I mean there are experimental communities that try to live with a different way. So I can't, you know, I, can't, I mean we could go on and we could discuss it as endless lengths. I think we should give someone else a chance. Thank you very much, really enjoyed it. And um, I remember just reading a little bit to do with um, Teilhard's ideas to do with eugenics. And I was wondering if you- Eugenics? Yeah, yeah. is this right? Like in, in certain parts of his books, I was just wondering if you could shed some light on that and explain it in- I would have to check up on that. I am not fully aware of that. He may have referred to it, but I don't know that he has ever written an essay on it or anything. I wouldn't know. I mean, he was always interested in social experiments and where we're going and how we are, you know, what can be tried next. But um, I don't know of an article on you, an essay on eugenics in his work. So I can't answer that question. Sorry. I have the great pleasure of thanking you, Ursula, on behalf of us all, and thank you all for coming. Um, it's like all this stuff just poured out of you, <laughs> Ursula. It's wonderful. You, thank you for sharing your life, life's work, really. And for those of us who weren't that well-versed with um, Chardin or ba Berry, Thank you for introducing us to these powerful visionaries, really. And I, I don't know about you all, but I feel animated. <laughs> Got that zest for life. <laughs> so thank you very much from us. Thank Just you a little. Thank you very much Some indeed. Thank, thank you. you. Thank um, you for inviting me.